Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Today we're talking with James Howard Kunstler, author of many books. We're also joined by Duncan Crary, famed podcaster of the Kunstler cast. Yeah, Jim Kunstler's been writing about the issues and challenges of peak oil for many years now, starting with his book, The Long Emergency, and now in the book that we're talking to him about today, which came out last year, Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking Technology, and the fate of the nation. And a lot of our podcasts really do end up dealing with the limitations of technology and solving our global problems. But that's because everywhere you go out in the world, there is tons of techno optimism and, you know, talk about Apple stocks and how well they're performing. And if you want to find an antidote to that, we are the media source for you. That's right, Justin. I actually got a chance to, to go see um, James Howard Kunstler when he was visiting Elon University. and got to actually sit down with him and uh, have a drink for a minute. And that was a pretty fun time. He's a very interesting guy. Uh, the audience there was filled with students who were there, I think, for classes. And they would just look at each other and just shake their heads and chuckle. And his, his message, while it is sometimes a little bit rough around the edges, does definitely ring true on many different accounts. Yeah, um, so what was it like being there at Elon listening to Jim? Jim has a very uh, polished approach and his message is right on point with all the ideas that we talk about here on The Extra Environmentalist. He talks about how, the f- how cities of the future might look and how cities of the present are just not really sustainable for how we're going to be living come uh, a peak oil future. And so we're going to be talking to Jim and we're also going to be speaking with Duncan Crary who was um, who spoke with Jim for many years on the Kunstler cast. And Duncan has recently moved on to do a new podcast called A Small American City based on his life in Troy and all the personalities and experiences that are awaiting the many people in the United States that may be looking to move back to small towns in the near future as these sustained high oil prices really grind away at the consumer economy as we know it. And Duncan's also going to tell us about life on the boat. He's working on a book about life on the inland waterways of New York, those important ways in which people were transported and shipped goods in our pre-industrial era. And now he's learning the ins and outs of how things work there now. And so we're going to talk to him about all the salty sailor stories he is willing to share. 
which is not really many because no it wasn't that many yeah and this is going to be a fantastic episode can't wait to get into it and i just hope we can keep the power on during the whole episode you know there's been some crazy stuff going on with that it's getting more challenging by the day and the bigger the spectacle the harder it is to keep the power on and this is a pretty big episode so we'll do what we can to keep the lights on no promises though Jim Kunstler, thanks so much for joining us today from upstate New York, about 200 miles north of New York City, to talk about your most recent book, Too Much Magic. And this is the follow-up to your 2005 book, The Long Emergency. And in starting out, if you could trace for us where we've gone as a country in the United States, as a civilization, since you've published The Long Emergency, have there been any surprises for you along the way? Well, I think the biggest surprise is that the disabled banking system now seems to be a, even a bigger problem than the oil and fossil fuel predicament in terms of what is likely to put us out of business faster. And I did write about the uh, developing global banking fiasco in the long emergency, but it's really come a long way since then and gotten a whole lot worse. And now the whole management of money worldwide is so disabled and perverted that what we're really facing is a future of tremendous capital scarcity and failures of capital formation. And by that, I mean the ability to marshal accumulated wealth for practical purposes, for investing in things that we need to do to keep civilization going. A lot of the notional wealth that we thought was there, that we hoped was going to be there to do some of the things we got to do, is not going to be there now. It's actually disappearing into a black hole of unpaid debt and welched upon loans and contracts that will never be fulfilled. Really, what, what we saw getting ramped up in the last five years since the financial meltdown itself is a tremendous edifice of dishonesty in our money affairs and our government affairs. It wasn't a conspiracy. I'm kind of allergic to conspiracy theories. But I think it was something that was done out of desperation to keep the system going and all the subsystems that are part of it. So what we basically did was decide that from now on, we're going to run all of our banking and our money management on the basis of accounting fraud. And that turns out to not be a very good thing as far as keeping civilization going. And another part of this is that the disorders in capital formation and money are going to have an effect on our ability to finance the operations of unconventional oil. So that many of the hopes that are now placed that uh, shale oil and shale gas and tar sands will somehow compensate for our loss of conventional oil and our increasing growing loss of imports from other nations. Those unconventional oil sources, which represent expensive, hard to develop 
oil. A lot of it probably will not ever be developed because the capital won't be there to do it. So that's probably the most surprising development since 2005. It turned out there wasn't really a straight pathway from peak oil to civilizational collapse. We've gone through some interesting byways on our way there. And you mentioned unconventional oil and tar sands and such, and we have uh, quite a bit of a listening audience here in Canada and our FM radio audiences here in Canada. And what advice would you have to Canadians as they continually hear more and more about tar sands development and building pipelines to China and Keystone XL pipelines? Do you have any thoughts on the future development of tar sands and unconventional oil in in Canada? Well, really only uh, apart from the one I just mentioned, uh, which is that the money and capital situation is going to interfere with uh, a lot of further development of tar sands. There are some interesting political implications that are worth thinking of. One is that I believe the time will come when the United States will try to invoke the Monroe Doctrine so that Canada will not sell its oil sand byproducts to other countries like China. The Monroe Doctrine is basically a 200-year-old political, uh, well, it's hard to say exactly what it is. It was sort of an idea, a declaration, an idea of policy from the 19th century that basically stated that the United States will not permit nations outside the Western Hemisphere from interfering with the affairs of the Western Hemisphere. And, of course, it was devised for totally other reasons back in the uh, very early 19th century as a way to keep the European nations from meddling in Western affairs. But I think what we're going to see is that uh, the United States will be so desperate for every drop of Canadian tar sand oil that will basically say, we are now invoking the Monroe Doctrine. We will not permit you to sell your oil to China or any other country. You have to sell it all to us. Can the United States do that? I mean, Canada is a sovereign country. How can they? The United States can say that. You know, whether whether Canada will comply with it is a whole other matter. It implies to me that that's a real setup for some political friction between two neighboring sovereign nations. So we'll see what happens with that. I'm just throwing it out there on the table because it's a kind of an out-of-the-box thing that could happen. You know, you asked me what should Canadians be prepared for. That's something that they probably haven't been thinking about, and it's worth thinking about. It would be Definitely. very interesting if we had an occupation kind of like the, the one we have in the Middle East and Canada with the United States rolling in their military. That would be a very interesting situation there. Actually, you know, I, I see a slightly different outcome of that, which is that you know, I think the Western Canadian provinces, to some degree, identify more with the Rocky Mountain states of the USA, and they actually might militate to join the USA in some kind of different governance arrangement. And so it could create an additional problem for Canada. I say that in line with uh, what I've written about nation states getting into trouble and falling apart into regional autocratic divisions. And I, I do believe that the United States could be susceptible to that, but so could Canada. I mean, Canada in some ways has even starker political divisions than the USA, or at least more obvious ones. So let's, let's shift gears for a second here. Your book is called Too Much Magic, Wishful Thinking, Technology, and the Fate of the Nation. And it kind of falls in line here with all the things that we're talking about, capitalism, and how the constraints of capitalism make it very hard for technologies to technologists to deal with. And as we've seen in the recent years, technology has just been uncontrollably rolling along, just making huge gains out of control, it seems like. 
Uh, new iPads are coming out every single year. How is this going to change? Why is this too much? Why is this vision of the future not correct? Well, I think it's more a matter of the following, that people who live in Western advanced nations, and possibly even, you know, now you could possibly include some Asian nations, have been through a particular experience, which is the 200-year-long industrial adventure. When we think about this, we always have to remember that this is something that never happened before. We don't have previous experience with technological societies, really. It's all kind of a new story, and like all stories, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what we saw in the, at the height of this story, let's say the middle of it, and let's call the middle of it, let's say 1900, and what we saw then was this sequence of marvels and wonders that came along one after another, the telephone, the telegraph, the elevator, the skyscraper, the uh, airplane, motion pictures, radio, machine guns, television, space travel, computers, uh, lasers, blah, blah, blah. The point being that those of us living in these advanced technological societies have become conditioned to a sequence of wonders and marvels that never seem to end. So we naturally expect that the sequence will continue, that there will only be further wonders and marvels. And I don't see it that way. I actually think that we've entered a period largely because of the nature of complexity. Joseph Tainter, the Utah State University anthropologist, wrote a wonderful book about the dangers of hypercomplexity for civilizations. What he basically said was you get into a situation of too much complexity where you then try to solve the problems of hypercomplexity by heaping more complexity on the problems. And that's what we do when we call for more technological, quote, solutions to many of the problems that have already been caused by technology, including some of the biggies like car dependency and dependency on petroleum and climate change as a result of our activities, these kinds of things. And so if you heap more complexity on these problems, the likelihood is you're only going to either make them worse or at, at best not improve the situation. I think we're at the point where we are suffering from the diminishing returns of technology and that that's not the kind of thing that's going to help us through this bottleneck of human civilization. Now, there are a lot of people who agree with you, and we have many of those people on this show who say that technology is not the answer, and it's not going to help us get to where we need to be as a civilization, and it's only building upon these capitalistic mindsets that have been so ingrained into our society for many, many years. By the way, I like to make it clear that I don't consider capitalism to be a belief system. You know, it's not something that you can either subscribe to or not believe in. That's a mistake. Capitalism is a set of laws governing the behavior of surplus wealth. And it doesn't matter whether you are a right-winger or a left-winger or a socialist or a free marketer. The operations of capital work the same way for everybody. And we're really not going to get rid of it. Whatever human society we have, assuming that it's a society, there are going to be people who have more stuff of some kind than other people. And there will be some kind of surplus wealth whether it's as little as two extra potatoes or a big stone room full of gold. 
So I think we need to just do a little reality check on what we mean when we talk about capital and capitalism. True, true. Um, so my question was to you, as the technology industry seems to be one of the few industries right now that is really moving forward, having any kind of growth attached to it in any kind of way, how do you tell somebody that this is not really what is, is, is important right now? How do you tell somebody who's very much involved in one of these technology companies or part of the technology industry? Apple was considered one of the largest companies in the United States. How do you tell these people that this is not the answer? Well, because nobody thinks that the iPad or the iPod is going to make it possible to continue running suburbia. These things are basically, you know, entertainment distractions. They're not anything that will help us with our food production problem, you know, as we run out of good soils and clean water and uh, encounter these terrible problems with climate change, which are going on right now in North America to anyone who pays attention to the drought that's going on in the Corn Belt. A refinement in the next release of the iPad is not going to help that situation. It's not going to feed people. I had an interesting experience at Google headquarters a few years ago where, when I gave a talk about energy and we had questions and answers after the talk and all the people got up and said, dude, we've got technology, meaning, you know, you're an ass for saying that we have a problem with energy because there's technology just waiting to be hooked up. And that really alarmed me because what it told me was that people at the highest level of technological corporate life in America didn't know the difference between energy and technology. And they're not the same. And, you, and if you run out of one, you can't plug in the other. Or even if you don't run out of it, we're probably not going to run out of oil. We may run out of the means to get the oil out of the ground, or we may run out of the means for ordinary people to be able to pay for it. But we're not going to plug in technology in place of fossil fuels to compensate us for the losses of them. Now, why do you think people think that way and get into that mindset? Because there's so many people in Silicon Valley, for example, who are just so involved in the startup scene and the technology scene, and they're just so enamored and have been used to the rate of development of technology that we've had over the last 100 years or, or 50 years or so. How do you think people get into that mindset that the technology is going to save us? Is that part of our education system? Is it just mainly a cultural value that they absorb over time? What do you really think it is? Well, it's partly that human beings are dazzled by toys that come in bright colors. So that's part of it. And when, when you add on top of that, the fact that Plenty of people are making money off of that for now. It seems to be a great thing. But some of the really important technologies that might have helped us make a transition to whatever the next economy is, you know, things like nuclear power, the problems and hazards with that and the fragility of it, you know, is now so manifestly obvious. That kind of technology, which really was the only way that we were going to keep the lights on for a really long time going forward, it's obvious now that we're not going to be able to do that. We may not even have the capital to do that. But to answer your question, there's a whole psychological dimension of why we are so entranced by magic right now. One of them we've already mentioned, and that is the conditioning of having lived through the last hundred odd years of the industrial adventure and being conditioned by the sequence of wonders and marvels to expect more wonders and marvels. This has been joined in the late 20th century by a couple of other things. You know, one I call the Jiminy Cricket Syndrome. And that's the idea which a lot of people now believe that when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. This comes partly out of 
the psychological self-help movement, and partly out of just the way uh, human emotions are naturally work. That when people get into trouble, and when a society gets into trouble, you go through the same stages of grief that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross described for people facing terrible mortal problems. You go through denial and anger and depression and uh, acceptance. And we're now in the situation of basically of denial. Uh, we haven't quite moved on to, into anger. We'll see that in the political turmoil that will be coming sooner or later. But part of that mentality of denial is the idea that when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. That's now become a normal belief for most adults in North America. It used to be normal for seven-year-olds, but now it's normal for everybody. And in fact, it's important to pay attention to the idea that the distinction between a seven-year-old and a fully developed adult human being is that adults generally know the difference between wishing for stuff and making things happen. And that border, that boundary has become very, very fuzzy now for adults in America who are becoming increasingly infantile. And then there's a, another very, very big psychological impediment, and that's the idea that it's possible to get something for nothing. Part of this comes from our experience with the comforts of technology. Part of it comes from the misconduct in banking and money operations over the last 20 years that have made it seem to be possible to get something for nothing, especially in the, the banking and investment world, where you can create all kinds of incomprehensible financial securities that are, in effect, swindles, but still end up making a lot of money and not going to jail. And that kind of thing ends up being very corrosive. When it is acted out in the financial realm, which is so central to human activities, it ends up sort of seeping into other realms of culture and politics, so that soon, not only are the people on Wall Street thinking that you can get something for nothing, but so are all the politicians and so are all the citizens in, a, in any given society. And one of the, the signs that this is true is the fact that over the same period, we made gambling legal all over the USA, and I, I believe in parts of Canada too. Gambling used to be a marginal activity that was, in many places, illegal. And for a pretty good reason. Not because I'm a Puritan, but because it was generally recognized in human society that it's not a good idea to believe you can get something for nothing. And gambling tends to promote the idea that you can get something for nothing. So therefore, you don't really want that to become a mainstream belief in your society because it's just dangerous. It's not consistent with reality. The reality-based idea for fully functioning adults is that you actually have to make investments of true effort and true capital to get the goods in life. So is that the similarity between why we have a housing bubble and why we believe the way we do in technology. It's really that belief that we can get something for nothing just by sitting there and someone will innovate and solve these problems. Well, I think that uh, you could make a case that there is a relation, a psychological relation between those things. Yes, between those two phenomena. It's expressed, I think, by a large body of the American public and perhaps the Canadian public too, that some mythological they in quotes, they will, quote, come up with 
a rescue remedy for the various problems we face. This is part of the conversation about how we're going to keep all the cars running. There are an awful lot of people who believe that Santa Claus is going to show up with some magical technological method for running all the cars when oil becomes too expensive or too difficult to get for one reason or another. And so you have this big conversation, by the way, taking place between people who ought to know better, like environmentalists. You have this big conversation about all the groovy new ways that you can run cars. People saying, oh, yeah, I bought a Prius last week. You know, aren't I a good citizen? Don't I deserve brownie points because I I bought a Prius? Or I go to this Aspen Environment Forum and all the environmentalists are sitting around talking about all the groovy ways you can run cars by uh, fuel cells or hydrogen or algae secretions or uh, biomass or sugarcane. It's basically a Santa Claus attitude. And the tragic thing is that it's all in the service of continuing to run a living arrangement that has no future, namely suburbia. Suburbia must be considered the result of a set of tragic choices made in North America. And yet some of the supposedly uh, best people in America, the best intellectuals in the environmental field, are now putting all this effort into trying to think of new ways to keep suburbia running and and to sustain the unsustainable. And it, it really represents a kind of fundamental madness Yeah. And like you're saying, this addiction to money and this addiction to gambling that we so very much have in this culture is very much related to that other point that you made about this being a very infantile place to live. The the United States especially is what, in Morris Berman's words, was the core culture of this infantile, juvenile kind of culture that has spread all across the world. And it's very much fueled by advertising and the whole thing that goes along with that. And technology. And technology, very much fueled by technology as well. Is it this belief that allows people just to think that no matter what happens, they're still going to be able to drive their cars, that they're still going to be able to fund their 401ks no matter what happens and just keep dumping bad stuff into the ocean, keep polluting the air. It'll just get better. Somehow the mommies and daddies of the world will just make it all go away, just like they've had when they're growing up. I don't doubt that a lot of people think that. And they're going to be very disappointed. What can you say? Life is tragic. Life is tragic and history doesn't shed a tear for societies that make bad choices. It's unfortunate. I'm sorry that it's happening. I I do think that there's an explanation, although I wouldn't call it an excuse. There's an explanation, which gets back to sort of what we were talking about five, ten minutes ago, that, you know, you have all this delusional thinking and magical thinking and wishful thinking And I think you can state categorically that as a society feels distress, the delusional thinking will increase. And that's exactly what's going on. We have these tremendous stresses in our society, and large numbers of people respond with delusional thinking. But there are some other forces going on right now that are sort of complementary to that, that are very troubling and uh, have to do with political leadership and cultural leadership that allow this to happen in the first place. I mean, if we had political and cultural leadership that served as a reality check for people who are delusional, we wouldn't get into so much trouble. But that is not operating properly either. And you mentioned a few moments ago that there's this belief that we can get something for nothing. But also in the U.S., there's this belief that if we buckle down and work hard, we can get something like all of the things that 
you know, we expect out of a life, out of a house and kids and a car and everything. And now so many students are going to institutions of higher education and graduating and getting out into the workforce and finding that those jobs that enabled that lifestyle are harder and harder to find and no longer there. What is it like talking to college students? Do they resist these ideas that you're bringing up about the shortfalls of technology? Or are they really embracing it because they're seeing even more than an older generation that this whole narrative of society that they've been sold is falling apart? Well, it's an interesting question. And getting back to what you said about two minutes ago, the idea that if you work hard and buckle down, you can make things happen. This was part of the North American ethos up until fairly recently. You know, I think that one thing that has happened is that the reality of buckling down, the reality of that whole story of being able to buckle down and work hard and get good results has been terribly compromised. And that a lot of young people don't believe it anymore because for the reasons that you stated, that the economy is crumbling. There are fewer and fewer jobs for these people, at least of the kind that they were led to expect that they would get. So the more that the narrative of working hard and being earnest and buckling down disintegrates, the more some people are going to stray off into the wishful thinking realm. And then there'll be another group of people who just become cynical. And by cynical, I mean expecting the worst of what the future will bring to them and thinking the worst of the human race and their fellow man. And I think that that accounts for some of the behavior among young people today, although more among the non-college educated demographic than the ones in college. The ones I meet in college, they seem to sort of cover a spectrum between complete bafflement and demoralization and some who are actually very, very clear-eyed and clear-headed and earnest about living very differently in the future. There are a lot of these young people who do expect the economy to, to fall apart, and they do expect that they're going to be making other arrangements for their daily life in their adulthood. You know, these are people who are volunteering on organic farms to learn how it's done because they suspect that that may be at the center of the economy in the uh, decades ahead. And, and I would urge them to think that way, because I, I do believe that the whole agricultural picture is going to change and that food production farming is going to come much closer to the center of our economy. So kids who are making the decision to explore that and develop skills, you know, I have a lot of admiration for them, and they seem to be some of the brightest and sort of mentally healthy young people I meet. We mentioned a housing bubble just a few moments ago. Also, more and more people are starting to recognize the higher education bubble and the cost that is required to go to American universities. What happens as this bubble starts crashing? Is higher education doomed? How do people who are looking to go to college start thinking about their higher education? Do they not go? Do they think very carefully about what they study? What's the logical approach there? There are, I think, two parts to this. One is the, the whole question of the loans themselves. And we have to understand that this tremendous loan bubble that's developed in the last 20 years, like many elements of the advanced civilization story, this is something that we've never done before. This is an experiment with no precedent. We've never ramped up so many loans and so many debts uh, and never saddled so many young people with so many debts ever in history. And the outcome of that is liable to be pretty unappetizing. My guess is that there will be 
what we might call a magic moment, uh, I'm using that maybe a little ironically, when the word spreads among young people, which goes something like this, hey, this whole college loan experiment that we are the beta testers of has been a swindle. Starting next month, let's all not pay back our college loans. I think that that's the kind of rebellion that could spread. And, and it would be such a tremendous problem for the banking industry that it could bring the whole global financial system down or really, really bring it to its knees. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is what will higher ed be in the years ahead? I certainly don't think it's going to continue to be what it is now, which is this giant sort of techno-bureaucratic processing system for cubicle serfs of one kind or another. I believe categorically that anything organized at the large scale is going to get into trouble and possibly fail, whether it's a big state government or a provincial government or a giant university or a multinational corporation or a national chain retail operation or a big corporate agribiz type farm. I believe that anything that's organized on the giant scale like that is gonna essentially collapse and the same thing goes for these universities, which have ramped up to tremendous scale over the last 50 years, with accelerating growth in the last 20 years, building enormous new facilities that I don't think are, they're going to really be using. What I think you'll see is this, is that these institutions will become too large to support, that the governmental support that they depend on for a large part of their operating funding is going to dry up and disappear, that the customers for their services, namely the students, are not going to be able to afford to pay to do it anymore, and they're going to lose a lot of customers. In conclusion, a lot of big universities are going to vanish, shrink, contract, disappear, fail, and we have no idea what the higher ed of the future is going to be. My guess is it'll be a very limited, much smaller set of institutions it may even get to a point where the whole system caused so much resentment that it'll be stigmatizing to be a college student in the future. People will not want to tell anybody that they're pursuing higher ed because there'll be so much grievance about what it did to a whole generation of people. So this is like the kind of thing you see when technology bites people back they may start feeling betrayed by science and technology and even all the baggage of the Enlightenment, and they'll turn to superstition in response. I think that we'll see similar behavior in terms of how people feel about institutions. So it sounds to me like that end of university is, your, is what you're forecasting. So kids leaving high school right now, would you recommend that they pursue a higher educational degree? Personally, I don't think that college is really a great choice for anyone right now. First of all, taking on any kind of a debt load at this problem is really a dead loss. It's, it's really quite crazy and pointless and just a bad idea. Put it in the, the folder that we now call tragic choices made by individuals and societies. Okay? I think it is terribly important that people develop skills and sets of skills. You know, there may be some colleges or college-type places where they can pick it up. Certainly, we're going to need people who have some kind of medical training, although I think the medical model is going to be way, way different from this overblown, bureaucratic, cruel, and idiotic system that we're now running in the USA. But we're going to need people with those kinds of skills. We're not quite sure where they'll get them. It's certainly possible that you can get them by training with people who already do it. 
that was a system that we actually that was actually pretty popular for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's called apprenticeship. We may see more of that in the future. You know, I do think that we're going to see different hierarchical arrangements of human relations, and that is class relations and vocational relations. I don't think we're going to see quite the same kind of egalitarian society that we had for the last hundred years. I think it's going to go in the other direction and that people will sort themselves out very much in terms of their usefulness to society. That's going to be a big thing. You know, that will be a much higher status thing than how much money you have. So it might be feasible to have a baker in charge of a city or something like that because he's very useful. I don't mean that a baker will turn a city into a giant bakery, <laughs> but uh, no, <laughs> societies are by nature emergent and self-organizing. And in fact, human lives are too, as are careers, as are personal life narratives. They're self-organizing and emergent in the sense that they organize themselves as they go along. People will learn how to do things. People who prove to be competent will be given authority. And they'll exercise it. But, uh, you know, it's also possible that people who pretend to be competent will get authority. You know, that, that's the kind of situation you get in with a character like Hitler, where you get a society in great distress and you get some character comes along at a certain time and he seems to be pretty good at pretending that he has political skills. And you have a society that is extremely delusional and extremely stressed and they turn to this person for leadership, and all of a sudden they have a big problem. So that can happen too. But the best outcome will be that this younger generation will produce some good leaders and some people who are worthy of exercising authority, and that they will behave heroically. It's hard to see it now maybe with some young people, but I think that we're going to get there. Now, you were talking a little bit there about the adaptive process that society is going to go through as we face all these problems of peak oil and financial collapse. And we were just talking to Dmitry Orlov recently, and he was saying that in the future, there's going to be a major bank that truly fails, wipes out trillions, governments aren't going to be able to back it up. And so it's just going to really put a huge dent in this derivatives bubble, if not take down the whole financial system. And when that happens, it's highly likely that commerce, as we know it today, would stop for a week, two weeks, three weeks at a time. And he thinks that could lead to unrepairable damage uh, for globalization and the way that we get our goods and services today. Is this how you really see us entering the world made by hand that you write about in your novels? Is it quickly and suddenly, and then you know everything just stops and we have to sort it out from there? Or do you see smaller series of breakdowns like we're seeing now? Well, I have a lot of respect for Dimitri, and especially for his writing, and especially for his, actually, the artistry of his writing, which is at least equal to the quality of his ideas. He's just a wonderful writer, but he's also a good thinker. And the scenario that you just spun out is certainly a possibility. I, I mean, I would concur with it. I would just say that it's not the only possibility. You know, there, a lot of other things could happen. There are all kinds of so-called black swan type events that could lead to problems that you know would not be the same as a bank going down, but could end up producing similar outcomes. For example, if you got a certain kind of outbreak of political mischief in the Middle East, or somebody decided to bomb the Saudi Arabian oil terminals in the Persian Gulf, or uh, you know you had a major assassination. I mean, it, the the possibilities are endless, but it's certainly true that the banking system now has reached such a dreadful point of fragility 
that it would take very little in the way of institutional failure to produce a situation uh, of what Dimitri is describing, which I would call cascading catabolic failure. This is also an idea that I think John Michael Greer would subscribe to, another wonderful writer on the subject of collapse. And he's kind of spun it out that way, too. So, yeah, sure, that's, uh, that, that, that's a plausible thing. But it, it could also happen that the process is more drawn out and corrosive and insidious and takes us down many twisting pathways. You thought you'd set the bar, I never try to work it out. We just lit the fire, and now you wanna put it out. You gave it all you got, and what you got is not a lot. Why don't you hand it over? Time is up, you've had your shot again. And once again, disasters in the end, it's like a default. Default. You've recently had Robert Gordon, I think, and Jeremy Grantham come out and say, growth is over. We're done. Yeah. We, we grew 3% for 100 years, then it started to slow down, now it's going to be 1% forever. That's going to completely screw up all the optimism around the debt. Yeah. And you've come out and said, no, come on. Actually, as the deficit fights subside a bit, I've been you know, exploring other stuff. And I, it, we actually are making some really significant forward movement on, on stuff that seemed to be stalled before and you know I, I like the driverless car story partly because this is something that really we thought was decades in the future and now appears to be almost upon us and also because this is IT really affecting the physical world right the, the, the big knock on all of the information technology stuff is yeah but you know we still move stuff around we the way we actually live our lives when we're not staring at our smartphone really hasn't changed very much where are the impacts on our physical lives on the material world from IT but all of a sudden if we've got cars that don't need a driver if commute times drop if the capacity of highways doubles because you know uh, um, driverless cars move in platoons uh, that's a big impact on the physical world and, and it won't be the only one. You know, I've been paying attention to the players for the Baltimore Ravens. Right now, they are very much bewildered. They're asking questions, what's going on. They're asking, how long is this going to take? Right now, the coaches are just trying to create some kind of organization here on the sideline, trying to help the players and not worry about things they can't control, asking them to stretch, make sure they stay loose. I had literally finished an interview with the man in charge of the NFL's Super Bowl game day operations when the lights went out. We were talking about the halftime clock and how Beyonce's show had run three minutes long when everything changed, leading us for, to a search for answers that over 35 minutes never came. Lawrence Kotlikoff, economics professor at Boston University. It's, so you're the one who states that America is broke and is even in a worse state than Greece and Ireland. Well, we economists look at all the bills the government has to pay and, and uh, in the U.S. case, we have enormous bills that have been kept off the books that are not official debts, but they're very real. For example, paying me my social security benefits, my old age pension, that's a real obligation. It's not part of official government debt, but it's very important because there are 78 million baby boomers who are going to get these uh, social security payments and in addition, medical payments from the government. If you uh, look at all those payments, they're about $3 trillion a year. So we have these huge bills 
nobody has thought about paying for them. And Congress and the presidents over the years have just focused on official debt and basically have not told the public about these big bills. He said the amount of the fiscal gap in the United States is, in your estimation, $222 trillion. Is this right? $222 trillion. If you right. take... This is like an astonishing number, which is like three times the world's GDP. This is, this is more than what the world makes. 20 times higher than the official debt uh, in the hands of the public, which is $11 trillion. So if you add all these spending obligations into the distant future, and you compare them with all the taxes, and you include in the spending all the uh, interest payments and principal payments on the debt, on the official debt, you have $222 trillion in present value. Now this is 12% of GDP on an ongoing basis. In other words, we need to get 12% more of GDP either in tax increases or spending cuts in order to have the fiscal gap be zero. We're doing far too little too late. It's, uh, it's like operating on a person with cancer and you say, well, there's a big tumor here. We're just gonna take a little bit out today and we'll come back in, a, in five years and we'll take out some more. But maybe in five years the patient is dead. So this is why we are, are, are in worse shape than Greece. And Greece is about 10% of GDP they need on an ongoing basis. We need 12%. Italy, it's about 5%. Germany, it's about 5%. So when you look at it from this perspective, it's a whole different story than when you look just at the official debt because these governments are making choices, word choices, about what to call official obligations and what to call unofficial. So are they intentionally hiding the They're enormity intentionally of the hiding problems? this. They've been spending, in our country, six decades running a massive Ponzi scheme, taking from young people, giving to old people, and then telling the young people, don't worry, you'll get yours when you're old. Promising pensions, promising healthcare benefits, and you know, this is happening in all countries. And so bottom line, you think that we have a decent chance of having the same growth trajectory that we've had for the past hundred years, that nothing is actually... Yeah, I think there's a pretty decent chance that we will actually be seeing uh, another wave of technological improvement, that growth will resume. But no, I, I actually think that, that the technological pessimists have actually picked a particularly bad moment to, to go all in on their case, because just now it looks as if tech, technologies that are really going to change our economy are, are breaking upon us. I know I'm only five years old, but I know I have to compete with all the children in China and Indonesia who are busily moving into the middle class. One day, I'm gonna grow up and be just like Ponzi the Clown and run my own Ponzi scheme. That's why my parents have encouraged me to start my own rickshaw business. I'm not going to kindergarten anymore. There's nothing there for me. I need to start my economic future today. Why learn to read when I can just be out making money? I can't wait to grow up to be a cog in the economic machine, fighting as hard as I can to keep the economy growing at 5% by sacrificing my well-being and health. Healthcare? I don't need healthcare. Why do I need healthcare when I have Disney World? It's my long-held ambition to go to college 
go into debt slavery, and come out of school with $300,000 worth of student loans, and then spend the rest of my life paying it off. Man, it's gonna be great! I know I'm gonna have to grow up fast. That's why I want to work hard and accumulate lots of money before the global economic crisis causes the international monetary system established post Bret Woods to unravel, reducing all my life saving to worthless pieces of paper. Hey kids, get back to work! Uh-oh, that's dad calling time to get back to work. Luckily for me, there's PonzyJobs.com and Ponzi the Clown. Hey, that's right, Johnny. Just when you think your economic future is uncertain, that's why there's PonzyJobs.com. It's all the unemployment opportunities you'll ever need when you grow up to participate in the Ponzi economy. And why would you want a Ponzi job? Well, that's because everything Paul Krugman says is correct and unquestionable. PonziJobs.com I want to grow up and work for the bank so I can run squatters out of failed suburban neighborhoods. I'm Ponzi the Clown, and I endorse PonziJobs.com You're listening to episode number 56 of The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with James Howard Kunstler about his book, Too Much Magic. Now, I, I wanted to make the point to ask you if there's any positivity that has come from the technological revolution that we've had during our time here on Earth. You can point to communications technology. People all over the world are able to communicate now instantly. Languages and cultures are becoming less profound and differences between people are kind of disappearing in a way because cultural groups are now formed by what you like on Facebook, per se. Do you think there's anything positive that has come from this technology? Well, I think a lot of things. Everything from certain medical wonders to the wonderful movies that we've enjoyed for the last 90 years. And uh, many of the arts, even the comforts and conveniences. There's a lot to admire about what human beings did with the raw materials that we were given here on the planet. I can't say that, that there's some kind of uh, a wonderful, sweet, sovereign, technological, positive thing out there that you could point to and say, this is the one thing that w- will carry us through to the next stage of civilization. I actually see the whole picture rather differently. I think we're heading into what I call a timeout from technological progress as we've known it. And by that, I mean getting back to what we were talking about at the beginning, about this sequence of marvels and wonders that has constituted recent history for mankind. This idea that for 200 years, we've had this story of one amazing thing after another, conditioning us to expect that it will never end. I think we're coming to the end of the story. And I think the end of the story is a timeout for a period of, uh, ahead of us, and we don't know whether it's 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years or forever. I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows, but I think that that's what it will be. It will be a timeout from technological progress because the Earth needs to recover from the insults of technological progress, and the human race needs some time to reflect upon what it did to itself and to the only planet that it has to live on, at least for now. And I think that this is going to be one of the main mandates of reality that I sometimes talk about. Reality is going to 
put us in this situation, whether we like it or not. We're going to get a timeout from technological progress, whether or not people like it. And that's why I wrote my World Made by Hand novels, and I sincerely and serenely believe that we're getting there. I believe that it will involve the loss of a great deal of knowledge. We have no idea how much we will be able to retain and in what form, but I'm quite sure we're going to forget how to do a lot of things, just like the Western world forgot how to do concrete the way the Romans did for 2,000 years. It wasn't until about 1900 that uh, our ability to use reinforced concrete came up to the level of what the Romans had been doing in 120 AD. So I think that there will be quite a few losses. I think there are some things that we can hope to retain, like the germ theory of disease, so that we remember to wash our hands and stuff like that. Some elementary public health things, but we really have no idea how this is going to work out. And this gets back to something that we touched upon also about 10 minutes ago, which is I believe sincerely that people in all parts of the world are going to feel terribly let down by technology and science and really what, what I call the baggage of the Enlightenment. Everything from logical positivism to the idea that you need to have demonstrable proof to believe in things. I think that the reaction to that, to that di tremendous disappointment that the sequence, uh, the cavalcade of wonders will be discontinued, I think the response to that will be a retreat into superstition. Generally, that takes the form of religious belief in human history, and that's kind of why I set things up in my World Made by Hand novels the way I did. We're beginning to see it in those novels, the opposition between true believers and the secular people who feel demoralized and let down. So that's where I think it's going there, Justin. Well, I wanted to ask about a economist like Tyler Cowen. He wrote a book called The Great Stagnation, and he says that we've innovated in a certain way and exhausted all of those potentials, and we're going to stagnate, but eventually we're going to find out a new way to innovate, and that's going to pull us out of this stagnation economically. Why do you think so many people misunderstand what a financial crash does to innovation and technology? Well, because I guess simply they don't understand the operations of money, which are very, very complex and have only been made more complex and abstruse by the non-transparent machinations of Wall Street and other places over the last 20 years. What's gone on in banking and finance in our time is a tremendous effort to make it more and more incomprehensible largely to conceal the nature of the fraud and the swindling that is going on. And so, you know, you make a security like collateralized debt obligation impossible for even an educated person to understand, and you make a huge amount of money off of it, and you end up with a mystified public that doesn't even know how to prosecute you for doing it. So it's not surprising that people don't understand the dangers uh, and hazards that we've fallen into with banking and what the repercussions are going to be. The repercussions are, we're going to end up being a whole lot broker than we thought we were. Uh, and by that, I mean the surplus wealth that we thought was there is not going to be there. Now, we happen to denote this surplus wealth in terms of things like dollars and euros and other currencies and basically abstract tokens and markers that denote the value of things. It's a system that the human race has contrived to try to figure out what the price of things are and how much surplus wealth you have. But introducing so much dishonesty into the system 
leaves you in a situation where you really can't tell how much wealth you have. And in fact, you're concealing the fact that a lot of that wealth is disappearing. And that's the predicament we're in. So that's the reason that a financial collapse could leave us really paralyzed in our ability to work our way out from under it and out from under its repercussions. In doing this show, we talk about these huge, huge problems, financial collapse, peak oil, climate change, the end of civilized world as we know it. And my father listens to this show sometimes and he comes to me and says, Seth, what about tactics? What can we do to actually fix all this stuff? Is there a way that we can go about doing anything to make a small amount of difference in the way this whole thing is going down? Can we have our own personal libraries so that we don't lose so much information when the, all the internet goes away? Or can we have bunkers or camping supplies? Or should I buy lots of guns? What can I do to, to you know stave off some of this huge brain drain that you're talking about? And also... What can you do, like physically do to kind of mitigate some of these horrible circumstances that are coming down? I think there's a tremendous amount that we can do. I'm always amazed when I go and give a college lecture somewhere, and during the question, some indignant person gets up and says, you know, you're such a doomer. You don't have any solutions. In the course of my usual blab, I offer plenty of ideas that I think are useful for people to get going and form a way of understanding the action that's required. So I will now describe it to you. I think that the key to understanding where we're going is simply this. We're going to have to downscale and relocalize all of the important activities that contribute to daily civilized life. And they can be described very precisely. We're going to have to downscale and relocalize and reform the way we do agriculture because agribusiness run by giant corporations using huge amounts of fossil fuel and huge amounts of borrowed money, that method of growing our food is not going to continue very much longer. So we got to do it differently. I can't figure it all out for you, but it's a huge field of endeavor that earnest young people can enter and they can figure out what they're going to do. We're going to have to reform the way we do commerce and trade because the Walmart model of commerce and trade is going to fail. The equations that make it possible, like 12,000 mile manufacturing supply lines and the warehouse on wheels, which represents the circulation of tractor trailers incessantly driving around the freeways of North America, that's going to end. So we're going to have to get back to some kind of richly textured, fine-grained, multi-layered, local, commercial networks of economic interdependency. You could call that Main Street and all of the operations that Main Street requires to run itself. We're going to have to do transportation differently because the happy motoring paradigm is over. We don't know it yet, but we're near the end of the mass motoring system. One of the things that I've been trying to promote is the idea that we have to rebuild the conventional North American railroad system. We don't have enough money to build a high-speed network. We missed the boat. We missed the window of opportunity in the last 30 years when there was a lot of capital around, and now we can't do it. But we have a perfectly good conventional rail system lying out there rusting in the rain that we have to fix and that we can fix, and that's a project that we could do which would do a lot, by the way, if we did it together as a nation or as societies, 
if we actually got our railroads rebuilt, that would do a lot to also restore our confidence that we were a competent society, capable of doing a, a big job that needed to be done. We're going to have to reform medicine sooner or later. My guess is that it's going to be reorganized on the local clinic basis. And it's not going to be about doctors being millionaires and driving $60,000 cars. It's going to be about a different way of organizing healthcare. It may be a bit more primitive than medicine is today. We don't know yet. Education is going to have to be different because the centralized schools that we poured so much of our 20th century wealth into, they're going to fail. They're already failing, but they'll fail even worse when the yellow bus fleets can't go around collecting the students anymore. But they're going to fail. We're going to have to reorganize education. My guess is that kids 20 years from now will be lucky to get the equivalent of an eighth grade education. But an eighth grade education that's really done properly will probably be the equal of a community college education today. An education that will allow people to write and read some language comprehensively and add up a column of figures and do some routine operations of algebra. You can learn that by the eighth grade and learn a little history of your culture. You can do that too. I don't know what higher ed's going to be. I, I do think an awful lot of education is going to be about apprenticing and learning real skills. And there are many other systems and subsystems that we could talk about reforming. There's no question that the banking system is going to have to reform itself and probably very drastically and severely. We don't know how capital is going to be managed in the future. It could be very primitive. It may be that we won't have the kind of stocks and bonds and debentures and instruments that are so common today. We may not even have the currencies that are familiar today. We may trade things like inventory slips and bills of lading and other kinds of documents that represented accumulated wealth, the kinds of things that actually we knew were traded during the Renaissance and after. And I say this because I think that a lot of this whole business of reforming the systems that we depend on will represent a reset to previous and less complicated, less complex levels of doing things. There are many other systems that will need to be reformed, but it represents a huge to-do list for the younger generations. And they're not going to have time to sit around and wring their hands and be crybabies. There's just too much to do to keep civilization going. And I think civilization is worth continuing. That sounds like a huge list of practical things that people can start doing in numerous different fields, numerous different disciplines, whether you're studying history or uh, engineering or, you know, any anything in between. If there is so much to do, why do you think everybody puts so much energy into denial about these problems instead of tackling them head on? Oh, I think that's fairly simple. It's really because all of the old stuff is still up and running and uh, everybody's enjoying the comfort and, con and convenience that they furnish. And, you know, it won't be until some of those systems get into real trouble and really manifest failure that you'll see, see people change their mentality. It just hasn't happened. It's like, for example, I was a young newspaper reporter during the 1970s. I covered the 1973 OPEC oil embargo. Boy, did you see people's mentality about energy change fast that year. The only tragic part of that was that it didn't last long enough. It only lasted, you know, a few weeks or a month and a half or something. I, I don't exactly even remember. 
There was a repeat of it, by the way, in 1979, when the Iranian revolution created a certain amount of discord in, in the oil market. So we had another situation with basically an oil shock. But the amazing thing is, since then, we haven't had any major oil shock. And people really haven't experienced that. It's, you know, a whole generation and a half has gone by without being subject to that. But, you know, it'll happen sooner rather than later. And, and other shocks will happen. I think that the kind of banking shock that Dimitri was suggesting is certainly the kind of thing that could really twist people's heads around, put them in a new place. So in changing the angle a little bit and talking just briefly about urban planning issues, there's many people who are starting to address planning urban centers and towns around this world made by hand that you've written about. But then there's books like Ed Glazer's Triumph of the City and other books, maybe not in the planning sphere, like Abundance, Why the Future is Better Than You Think by Peter Diamandis. What is it that you think that is driving the authors behind these books and why aren't they aware of these same issues that you're talking about? Well, to put it the most charitably, they just have a different point of view than I do, for sure. And it's certainly okay for people to have different points of view. No one can really predict the future. We're not God. We're not clairvoyant. Glazer has a defective vision of where we're going. Ed Glazer is a Harvard economist who wrote a book called The Triumph of the City, which basically said, get ready for even bigger cities with bigger skyscrapers. I think that that's nuts because the biggest trend that lies ahead is contraction in every way that we can imagine. The contraction of economies, the contraction of the size and scale of operations of all the systems that we were just talking about, agriculture, banking, transportation, commerce, etc. The trend for all of these things will be contraction. And the big political and environmental and business task of the years ahead will be the management of contraction so that this inevitable process can happen, but with minimizing the hardship and misery that it would cause for people. And let's add for the fact that there are too many people on this planet and this contraction is going to be painful. There's no question that we're in a condition of population overshoot. And I wouldn't try to soft pedal it or minimize it. I would only add for those people who are wringing their hands over it, we're not going to do a damn thing about it. There won't be any policy or protocol for managing population. The usual suspects will do what they do. Starvation, conflict and war, disease, etc. But the task for those of us who want to take part in the ongoing project of civilization is the management of contraction. And that means, too, that our cities are going to contract. They have to. They have attained a scale that simply is not consistent with the resource and capital realities of the future. So they're going to have to shrink. We don't know how it's going to happen exactly. They'll be fortunate if they contract around their old centers and their waterfronts, if they're lucky enough to have them. The skyscraper is obsolete. People like Ed Glazer don't know that. The architects and developers don't want to know it because they make much more money when they do what's called maximizing the Florida area ratio of a building lot, which means if you have a building lot that's 100 feet square, the more rentable or saleable units you can place on that 100 square feet, the better it is. So they have a tremendous incentive to build skyscrapers. That's all well and good. The skyscraper is obsolete, and not just because of the energy requirements, the air conditioning, the heating, the electricity, etc., and not even the elevators, because elevators actually take very little energy when they're running with counterweights. 
The real reason that skyscrapers are doomed is because they will never be renovated. We're not going to have the capital to renovate them. We're not going to be able to renovate megastructures on that scale because we're not going to have the capital. We are very likely to not have the modular building materials that we need to do the renovations. And all buildings need to be renovated periodically. That's just a law of nature and the human condition. But we're not going to be able to adaptively reuse these buildings. So that whole shining skyscraper city of the future is a fantasy that ain't going to work out. We'll be lucky if our cities can contract coherently. One of the things we're going to see is that globalism is going to wither simply because it wasn't a permanent installation in the human condition, contrary to Tom Friedman. It was a temporary set of economic relations that came about for special reasons at a special time, namely about 50 years of relative peace between great powers and about 100 years of cheap energy. But globalism is going to wither and I think we're going to see the North American economy become much more internally focused. And it will also probably be a smaller scale economy altogether, much smaller GDP totally. But one uh, implication is we have a wonderful inland waterway system in North America, and we're going to have to get serious about reactivating it and reactivating the cities and towns that line it. And that means that all kinds of places from St. Louis to Davenport, Iowa, to the towns and cities on the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence Seaway, these are going to become much more important again. And I don't mean to imply that there will be no trade between other nations. It's just that I think it's going to contract and that our economy will be much more internally focused. So the question of what happens to suburbia is a corollary question to what happens to the cities. I do not think that there will be a great rush to the cities just because suburbia fails. I think what you'll see instead is demographic shifts, uh, which send many people back to smaller towns and smaller cities, exactly the kinds of cities that were deactivated and depopulated in the last 50 years. So we'll see places like Syracuse, New York, and London, Ontario, and Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Dayton, Ohio becoming more important places again because they're more scaled to the lower energy resource realities of the future. I think the small towns of North America will be much more important. The meaningful relationship between urban places and agriculture is going to be a big thing. If you're not in a city that has a meaningful relationship with food production, you're going to have problems with your city. The implications of that for some places are pretty bleak. Places like Las Vegas and Phoenix probably aren't going to make it. The same could be said of many parts of Southern California. So no vertical farms, no mega density like Manhattan? No. In fact, I would state categorically that the cities that are overburdened with skyscrapers face tremendous problems. And they'll discover that skyscrapers are liabilities, not assets. And this remains to be understood. There's another problem with skyscrapers, by the way, that almost nobody understands. And that is the system for deconstructing the rights of real estate, namely condoization, turning every unit in a megastructure into a different ownership. Uh, we've only had experience with that on the way up, with creating them on a massive basis. We've never had any experience with them failing on a massive basis or very little. Miami right now may be the best example of that. But the point is that when the condo system starts to unravel and the property ownership 
associations cannot function anymore and cannot maintain the buildings, we're going to see another reason why the skyscraper is obsolete. Yeah, that's true. We talked with Paul Kingsnorth, director of the Dark Mountain Project in our, one of our last podcasts. His project is about redefining the narrative for the United States and, and the world. What is the place of redefining a narrative for our culture? And, and as an author who's done this kind of work, how does this play into redefining what the country and the world looks like? Well, it's terribly important because in order for a society to remain functional and coherent, the members of the society need to construct what I would call a coherent consensus about what's really happening and what they can do about it. That means that you have to develop a set of ideas, call it a story if you like, that is consistent with the way reality operates and consistent with the circumstances that reality is generating in your time and your place. So the ability of a society and of individuals in it to construct a story that is both coherent and meaningful is terribly important. And it's a hallmark of our current awful predicament that we cannot construct a coherent story about what's happening and what we're going to do about it. That's exactly why the American public is preoccupied with the Kardashians on so-called reality TV and at the same time cannot figure out a, a way to politically deal with the gigantic problems that are facing us. What is it that really gets you through the long emergency? Is, is there some kind of deeper human experience that you reside on? And do you have any thoughts on how to live a meaningful life in this long emergency that we're in? I don't think there's anything more important than finding a way to lead a purposeful life. And I've been very fortunate. I don't know that I'm really able to instruct other people how to do it, but I was able to do it for myself. My time is taken up with doing things that are meaningful to me. I'm able to function as a writer. I'm able to make a living off of it, even though I don't get rich off of it. I do other activities that are hugely meaningful for me. You know, I play music with my friends around here. I've moved to the edge of a small factory village in upstate New York. I'm living on a property that's allowed me to construct a pretty elaborate garden and orchard. It's not huge. It's three acres, but you could, you'd be surprised how much food you can grow in three acres. I'm very involved in that, in the whole business of getting that together. I've constructed a social network for myself that's pretty sturdy, that's made up of good people I respect. And I think that the construction of a social network, or in other words, a community to call your own, is a project that everybody needs to take seriously. It is a construction project. It's an ongoing construction project, and you need to attend to it and take care of it and maintain it and feed it and be nice to it and keep it going. And it's just terribly important to maintain relationships with other people. And probably the biggest thing for people facing what I call the long emergency will be what kind of community they can find to be a part of. And part of that means being very careful about selecting geographically where you're going to live, because some places have better prospects than other places. And then being careful and mindful about constructing and being part of a social network and a community that you will choose to be a part of. Excellent. So as a very last question, your book's called Too Much Magic. Are there certain types of magic that we do need, like spontaneity or anything else that you can foresee? Yeah, we need artistry. We need love. 
We need beauty. We need songs and music. We need the respect of the other people in our community and of ourselves. And that's the kind of magic that's not as dazzling as holding an iPad in your hand and seeing a lot of pictures moving across the screen. But it's the kind of enduring magic that I think the human race is best at and will get the most from. My girl's name is Sonora. I tell you, friends, I adore her. And when she dances, oh, brother, she's a hurricane in all kinds of weather. Jump in the line, rock your body and time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, rock your body and time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, rock your body and time. Okay, I believe you jump in the line, rock your body and time. Shake, 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 shake your body line. tuning in on your radio receptacles out there across the nation. This is your United States Department of Energy and Native American Eviction, bringing you a very special message in this year of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior of 1892. We know it's hard out there living through all that crap that you have to live through out there on the plains. You know, what happens when your horse falls down a well? What happens when it's 6 o'clock in the evening time and you just want to read a book? I can't read my book. We know the problems that you face as citizens of this fair country, and we're here to help. Now, you might have heard talk about this issue of peak whale. And you know, a lot of fishermen are saying it's harder and harder to find whales these days. But let me tell you. Some of the newest studies by these international energy agencies are saying that there's actually so many whales off the shores of America that we're going to have an unlimited supply of whales forever. In fact, we're going to be whale independent in the near future. Now we're going to talk to energy expert Rufus Champagne. You might have tried Rufus's cure-all tonics at your local tent sale. And as you know, Rufus's bubbly tonics sure do cure consumption but not consumption of whale oil. That's right, folks. We here at Royal Dutch Whale have the slightest and greatest in whale technology. We not only dig deeper and employ the greatest whaling technologies, but we know how to find that last bit of whale, and we know how to use it just right. Now, Rufus, there's all these people out there saying that we're going to run out of whales, and that we might even hit peak whale. But you know that's not true. Oh, but do I know that's not true? That's a whole bunch of malarkey. A malarkey sandwich, if you will. Now, you found, Rufus, through your research, that our technology of whaling vessels is getting so much better that we're going to be able to access those bigger and bigger whales deeper and deeper under the ocean. So even as we're running out of those easy-to-catch whales towards the top of the ocean surface, we're going to be able to get at those big whales deep under. That's right, and I know everyone out there likes burning whale oil to keep their lamps going and to keep the streetlights lit, but <clears throat> we will be pulling these whales deep, deep from under the ocean. Yeah, that's right, miles down below, we're going to be pulling these whales out. We've got some fancy, fancy bait, and I'm not sure if they're going to be able to fit on our boats because they are some big whales, if you know what I mean. 
But with our whiz-bang technology, we're going to be able to pull these whales from deep, deep under the ocean. It's going to be pretty hard, but I have faith we're going to do it. And, uh, you know, all those sailors are saying they're sighting new blowholes every day. So you got to get out there and get harpooning. So I'll let you go here today, Rufus. Thanks for sharing your message with the American people. This has been a special message from your U.S. Department of Energy and Native American Eviction. Now get out there and colonize that land. Duncan Crary, thanks for joining us today from Troy, New York, from what is, I'm told, you call the Creratorium. <laughs> well, uh, Jim Kunstler gave it that name, but yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so you're in the Creatorium in Troy, and you've got a number of new projects that are coming down the pipeline since Jim has taken over the Kunstler cast of yeah. his own accord. And so we wanted to follow up with our conversation with Jim earlier in today's episode and speak with you about quite a few things. Sure. Yeah. I was just wondering, in following up on your apprenticeship with Jim, how has that been? What was that like getting to know him so well over the years? It was great. And I think I call it an intellectual apprenticeship. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I had uh, discovered Jim through The Geography of Nowhere. I read that book as a college student a few years after it was published. And it really resonated with me because of my own background growing up in suburbia. And when I set out to be a reporter after college, I used to interview Jim for local stories because he actually, although he's a national figure, he lives in my area. So over the years, I, you know, I'd talk with him for interviews, but I really always felt like he had so much more to say than I could fit in a soundbite. So that's kind of how the, the Kunstler cast came about. I had gotten into podcasting and uh, I thought it was a good medium to let him loose <laughs> on the world. I will say that Early on, one of the strangest experiences I had working with Jim on that project was I brought him to our suburban mall, you know, like during one of our early episodes. (laughs) And man, it was just the whole time I was thinking, I can't believe I'm walking around a suburban shopping mall with Jim Kunstler. And I was a little bit maybe starstruck in the beginning because I always looked up to him as a famous writer. But anyway, that that was a trip. But I've learned a lot over the years, and I'm now applying it to uh, what I've learned to new projects on my own. So what was the process like with you and Jim and how you got the podcast started? I mean, did you go up to him and say, hey, Jim, you have some good stuff to say. Let's do a podcast. Kind of. This is, uh, I'm now working on my third podcast series in about eight or nine years. It's called A Small American City. I figure we'll talk about that later. But I did do a program for years called the Humanist Network News for a nonprofit organization. And I used to get some pretty, I mean, I was terrible when I first started, by the way. It's unlistenable the first year. um, Yeah, we're actually, we're still uh, terrible. (laughs) No, you're not, but it takes a lot of practice. And sometimes the listeners aren't so kind (laughs) with the learning curve. But, uh, you know, I had a show where I had a lot of big names on it. Salman Rushdie, E.O. Wilson, Christopher Hitchens. And Jim Kunstler was one of the last guests that I had on that series. And we talked for hours. I only used about a half an hour for the final product. But I had a really good time sitting there with him. I knew he had the potential to be a good podcaster. So I suggested it to him. You know, you should have your own podcast. And he basically said, yeah, sure. But, you know, as long as someone else does all the work. So I thought, you know, like the technical work. So I thought about it for a while. And I just said, all right, let's do this. I mean, we didn't have a budget. We, you know, we didn't have a group backing us up. But we just started sitting down in his place and my place and 
Well, we cranked out about 200 episodes over the years. People seem to like it. So a lot of people might say, listening to Jim's message, you know, reading his books, that he's spreading a story of doom, uh, of gloom and doom. What's your take on that? I think that there's a lot to be optimistic in uh, his forecast for the future. And, you know, we'll see how things play out. It's rare that a prognosticator gets everything right. But I think there's a lot of truth in the general vision that he has for the trends that we're going to be facing. And uh, it's all a matter of how you view the world and what you value. I live in a small upstate New York City that's seen a lot of hard times. The industry went away. The suburban sprawl has really trashed the surrounding landscape. And I think things will be better for places like Troy, New York, as the price of gas increases and increases. And as people, some people will probably move to places like Troy because they have no other choice. On the other hand, a lot of people are moving here because they want to be in this small urban fabric. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about in what he says. Now, a lot of people know Jim from his writings and from listening to all the conversations that you've had with him over the years in the Kunstler cast, but you've had the ability to get to know him in a more casual setting. Do you like go to a cocktail party with him and then someone's talking about the latest 3D printing technology and then he goes off on a rant? What, what is it like? <laughs> no, Jim has many different personas, I think we should say. And he's a different person in a, you know, a private personal setting than he is on the mic or on the Colbert report or something like that. We do always make sure to put out a bowl of cheese doodles every time he's hosting a party, though. <laughs> he's a cheese doodle fan. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think some people do forget that about public figures. And he is a public you know, person in, in many ways. And that, that's not the whole story. And sometimes he's filling a role when he's talking to the public that's different than he is you know, as a regular person, which I'm sure every celebrity, people much more famous than him, are probably a lot different you know, when they're just hanging around with their friends. Yeah, I'm definitely sure about that. And when you're in a more casual setting, you can be a little bit more open. You don't have to worry about your image as much. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, what did, what did your family think about you working with Jim Kunstler. I'm sure, I'm, I don't know about your background, but I'm judging from my personal experience in my family, this is a little bit, you know, a little bit weary about me coming to these topics. And you know, what, what did your family get, think about it? Well, I've been spouting off Jim Kunstlerisms to my suburban, somewhat conservative family for years. <laughs> so, I mean, they're, they're used to it. Long before I started podcasting with Jim, I was quoting him incessantly. I did, like that earlier series I did before the Kunstlercast, the Humanist Network News, I mean, that dealt with religion and atheism and humanist values, which was probably a more controversial subject matter than suburban sprawl and peak oil. So the folks are used to it. And, uh, you know, they're supportive, even though they don't necessarily agree with you know, the values I'm espousing. Now, you were interested in all of Jim's writings because you grew up in suburbia, even though there's that general feeling of the issues and the problems of suburbia with his transportation arrangements and just the separation that you feel in living in the separate housing environments. Was there any core moments to you that stood out that really said, this is not a place I want to live and I want to devote myself to what we now know as values of new urbanism? When I was a young boy out there on the cul-de-sac, we were surrounded by overgrown farm fields that had turned into hardwoods. And I had a, a wonderful time, you know, exploring the woods and having my own adventures. And, you know, my folks are, I'm 34, my parents are in their 70s. So they're, they're a little bit older and a little bit more relaxed than younger parents about letting their children wander around. That was great. 
it was really that period before I was old enough to drive a car, honestly. I started to go kind of stir-crazy out in suburbia. Although I should mention, I was pretty fortunate. You know, I lived in a suburban town very close to a small city, Albany, New York. And I actually went to school in Albany. I had a lot of friends in the city. And I could get there before I had a car by bus, but I'd have to walk a mile or so. But I'd do it. But that's when I, I started to really form some strong opinions about the downside to suburbia. And I've never really let go of that. Yeah. And living in suburbia definitely gives you a perspective on the ideas that Jim has. And I'm sure that there's the contrast in talking about these things and living in a suburban environment has added some definite contrasts into your mind. I want to talk to you about peak oil and how has that idea of, of how the energy crisis in our world and the long emergency, how has that changed since you started talking to Jim and to exploring these ideas yourself? How has that, that idea has changed? I think that the general public is becoming more aware of these issues. And, you know, the long emergency is not just about energy scarcity. It's also about financial problems that we're facing and we're going to be facing. And as the price of everything gets more expensive, you know, the common person starts to pay more attention to these issues. I mean, one of my other projects I'm working on is I'm writing a new book. It's going to be a multimedia project about the inland sailors and a company that's in the Northeast and a company that's based right here in Troy, New York. And the owners of that company are very familiar with Kunstler's writings and the long emergency. And they know that as the price of diesel continues to go up, the viability of shipping by water is going to increase. And already this last season I spent with them, we, we've seen that. You know, they're hauling grain across the Great Lakes for the first time in many, many, many years because it's becoming more affordable to do it that way. Yeah, and there are a lot of opportunities with the ways that things are changing, and that's hopefully something that we can convey in, in our work on, on our show as well. Before we move on to talking about some of your current projects, I wanted to just touch on the Kunstler mm -hmm. cast one more time and see if there were any like moments that really stood out for you over the years of doing the show, whether it was going to the Congress for the New Urbanism conferences or just particular topics that that Jim covered? Well, I really enjoyed going out on the streets with Jim, especially in Troy, New York, but we, my hometown, but we did it, you know, when we were at the Congress for the New Urbanism in West Palm Beach and other places. It was really fun to, to just walk around with Jim in an actual environment and observe firsthand the, uh, the elements of urbanism that Jim talks about, you know, in his blog and in his writing. Those were the most memorable moments for me. We did have a somewhat heated exchange with the mayor of my city over what to do with the brutalist city hall we have downtown. It's a horrible building that Jim and I both hated. And the mayor finally sort of went rogue and knocked it down on his own. And that's kind of what Jim and I were advocating for. But when we ran into him on the street, I don't know, it just, it was kind of abrasive. Possibly. It was mostly our fault. So the mayor's just <laughs> walking down the memorable. street, and then you guys just go after him? Well, we sort of jumped him. I wasn't planning on it. I, I was sort of... We were walking around a, a festival in Troy called the Victorian Stroll, because we have all this Victorian urban fabric here. The buildings are pretty amazing. And once a year, the town, people dress up in 19th century clothing, and they... They kind of just used the city the way it was used in the 19th century. No cars or anything. And the mayor was just wearing his, his Victorian garb. 
And I was just going to do like a quick puff piece interview with him. <laughs> but Jim just went right into the, the issues and it kind of exploded from there. But it, it's all good. And I mean, it's a small city. So I've, I've run into the mayor several times since then. Good, and, good. You know, we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> so you recently have moved on from the consular class and yeah. you started a new project in yeah. Troy, New York. And this project is called yeah. A Small American City. I was wondering if you could explore a little bit about what your project is here and what your aims are for it. Yeah, it is a, a podcast that will probably be released every two weeks, at least in the beginning, because it is kind of an expensive, time-consuming endeavor to, to put out a podcast. I know that well after doing a show with Jim weekly. That, that got to be a little much after a while. But my my mission is to create a program that is based very locally in my neighborhood, but geared towards a national and even global listenership, attempting to reacquaint them with what a small city is and what it means to live in a small city. And my particular city has been hard up for, by the way, there's only 50,000 people living in Troy, New York. Something that Jaime Correa told me once, one of the new urbanists, was that in his observation of traditional cities, there were no traditional cities, with the exception of Rome and Athens at the height of their peak, that ever had more than 50,000 residents. It's actually the magic number. You really can have a vibrant urban fabric with as few as 50,000 residents, and I think maybe even fewer than that. The one point I want people to realize with this project is that it's not just the concentration of buildings or people that make a city, it's also the quality of the characters who enliven the place. So this new project, I still discuss the issues of urbanism, urban design, energy scarcity, etc. But I do it by allowing the people who live here to tell their stories in long interview form. So you know, if I'm talking to a novelist, he'll approach it from that angle. If I'm talking to a carpenter who builds a lot of the third places that we live in, he'll approach those topics from his perspective. That's what it's all about. Right. And you were saying that in Troy, you have about 50,000 people. And I've always heard about New York City, you know, 8 million people, 8 million stories, something like that. Do you ever worry at all about the amount of content that you can develop for a show from a place as small as Troy? <laughs> no, I have absolutely no worries about that here in Troy. We, we tend to be very charismatic, gregarious, intelligent <laughs> people here. And there's a high concentration of those type of characters here. And uh, I've spent a lot of time doing so-called research in the pubs of my small American city. And there's never a shortage of stories to tell. So we, we got years of content to put out. No, and I, I really believe you because I listened to that latest episode that you put out with Peter the Carpenter. And I, I just I went into it thinking just, oh, he's probably a carpenter. He's going to talk about building things, you know. <laughs> making a shelf or two, but holy moly, this guy, <laughs> he, his depth and, and breath is incredible. How did you find him? You can't avoid Peter if you come to Troy. There's a lot of people emailed me afterwards asking if I would send a photograph him or whatever. And for that particular character, I wanted to leave it a little, I wanted people to imagine him looking however, you know, they imagine him appearing. But yeah, he's typically the first person you meet when you come to Troy because he's so outgoing and he, you know, he goes out after he's done working. 
And I, I don't provide any background when I start the new episodes. It, it just cuts to either an essay by me or I just start talking to the person. I don't even tell you who I'm talking to until the end. I do that by design because that's how it feels when you first arrive in this small city. There's just all these outgoing, convivial people, and they're throwing around names, and they're talking about places that maybe don't even exist anymore. And they're always welcoming. You can always sit in on the conversation, but you have to listen for a while. You have to keep showing up to the bar before you understand what's going on. And I, I wanted people who listen to that Peter the Carpenter episode to feel like that. Whoa, I'm eavesdropping on this wild, surprising conversation in a pub, and I don't quite know what's going on, but I'm going to stick around till the end of, to find out. Were you just hanging around in Troy over the years and you met so many characters that you had this idea brewing in the back of your mind, like, these guys really need to reach out to a national listening audience. We really need to give them some kind of way to reach out to the nation and the world. Is that how it started? Yeah, and I mean, I grew up in a suburb outside of Albany, New York, which is about, you know, nine, ten miles down the Hudson River from Troy. And even as a small child, I would beg my neighbor's dad to drive us to the comic book store in Troy. I always knew there was something special about the place, but it wasn't until I spent years reading the works of Jim Kunstler and others and talking with him that I acquired a better vocabulary to articulate what makes the place special. But later when I was in college, I went to Union in Schenectady, which is another small city about 15 miles west of Troy. And even as a college student, I would come to Troy every week to walk around and get my hair cut or whatever and go to the pub. And yeah, I, I just noticed there was something special about the place and the people here. And, uh, you know, Jim and I used Troy as sort of a Petri dish for our conversations about the issues of urbanism and the long emergency on the Concertcast. So I'd already gotten a feel for what the place could do and I was pretty confident before I launched this series that I'd be able to present enough content to a national audience that they would be into it. Could you speak a little bit about your background, about your training, maybe where you went to school and what got you interested in podcasting as a medium? Sure. I only have a bachelor's in English literature. I went to Union College, which is a small liberal arts school. I did start a master's at SUNY Albany, but I just quickly realized it was kind of not my thing. It wasn't really going to benefit me. After college, I got a job at some small newspapers, rags mostly, but that's where I learned to write and tell a story because you, you know, you're not going to learn how to write when you're handing in essays for a college professor. They just don't really pay attention to the, the craft and they, and they give you like a word limit that's just outrageously long. You got to keep it a little tighter than that. So I, I learned the ropes as a newspaper reporter with no training, just on the job. And reporters sometimes say, you know, you're selling your soul when you go into public relations. But, you know, I made the switch to PR. I've never worked for a big corporation or anything. The, the stuff that I publicize is uh, either for nonprofits or small businesses or authors. But I, you know, I started figuring out that side of the industry. And uh, at one of the nonprofits I work for, there was a coworker who was working for a startup on the side for podcasting, Libsyn, Liberated Syndication. And he you know, told me for years, you should really get into podcasting. And I finally did for that organization. And 
you know, I've been at it for eight or nine years now. Now, you've been doing so many really awesome podcasts for a while that it's really interesting that you've been speaking with Jim Kunstler, who has his latest book called Too Much Magic. And Seth and I are always stunned at the uh, ways that we can use technology to carry on these conversations across multiple time zones, across oceans and countries. And a lot of what we end up covering is how technology is not going to save us and it's not going to fix our problems. But here we are using technology to do this. Could you talk a little bit about your feelings on these thoughts of you know failing technology and technology not saving us versus using technology to tell these stories and, and get the information out to the world? Yeah, sure. I, I get asked that a lot and I think about it. I've said this before in the public realm. I've never owned a cell phone and I don't intend to. And I do have a publicity consulting business on the side and people always tell me, how can you be a publicist without a cell phone? And my response is, I've pitched to all the majors in the past. I've never missed out on an opportunity. I don't do PR for the White House. There's no reason why someone has to talk to me right away. I just don't really work in that realm. Do you have a beeper? No, I don't. I finally, which is freaking some people out, I finally bought an iPad that has cell service because I've been spending time out on the tugboats on long hauls for the new book project I'm working on. And I got this iPad with cell service and a keyboard so I could use it like a laptop. <laughs> but it does have texting apps, so I can sometimes text people. It really freaks out people who know me. But I don't carry the thing around with me when I'm in town. And basically, you can text me between 9 and to 5, but then forget about it. When I'm out, I'm out. Because I find the cell phones can be so intrusive. Like I, I have conversations with people. I, they're never fully there with me. They got one foot in my conversation and one foot on Facebook at the same time. And it really degrades the quality of interaction. Fortunately, I hang out with older people who mostly who don't do that. But the podcasting, sure, it's a new technology. But I mean, I'm using analog radio equipment. And I'm really just sitting down talking with people on a podcast. So it's really not new technology. I mean, the way it's distributed to the listeners is sort of new. But this is just old-fashioned radio. And it's just old-fashioned storytelling when it gets down to it. And what was it like for whomever received your first text? <laughs> Honestly, it was a girlfriend I was with for years who just was tired of having to call around town to see if I was at one pub or the other. It was just too old-fashioned for her. So I finally broke down. and I, ha I Actually, I, I should clarify, I had a little device that only did texting for a while. That's my first text was on that. But uh, I just got rid of the thing. It's too much of a nuisance for me. I've trained people. They know, you know if they want to make plans with me, they need to call me on my landline. And I won't screen calls because I have no call ID, so it's Russian roulette every time I answer. But you got to call me before I'm out, or you got to catch me when I'm out randomly, or you got to talk to me the next day. It's no big deal. That's the way the world used to be up until recently. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Didn't have cell phones at all. I was just thinking about when I was studying abroad in Copenhagen about in 2006, I had a cell phone that could only text. It had no smartphone technology. Yeah. And right now, smartphones are really the way to get around when you're traveling. Having the maps in your pocket is just so essential. I'm wondering about your background in traveling. I know Justin and I talk about travel a lot on this show and how it kind of shapes people's perspectives and it kind of gives people different ideas about the world and kind of puts the American experience into uh, its own little microcosm. Did you have any kind of travel experience in your background? Have you been out of the country for a long time? Yeah. And I mean, I ill spent my youth up in Quebec, 
mostly in Montreal in high school for reasons that I'll spare you now, but we could basically get up there on a school night, party down with the French Canadians, and then make it to class the next day in Albany. So I did a lot of that as a high schooler, which was kind of crazy. Yeah, young drinking age up there in Montreal. Yeah, we were sort of, we were in the bars in Albany at the same age, but it's an old-fashioned, anachronistic place. But yeah, there (laughs) there were other reasons to be up there in Montreal. But I spent about six months kicking around in Scotland, mostly, but the rest of the UK when I was a junior in college. I'd signed up to do a term abroad in Scotland, but you know their terms are only 10 weeks long, and I got there much earlier than that. And I wandered the country on my own, which I think is a really great way to experience a place. The natives or the locals are much more willing to take you in and show you around if you're alone. You know, if you're in like a couple or a group, you sort of seem self-contained. They don't really worry about you. But I was just taken in by Scottish people and they'd send me to their relatives in other corners. There was one experience I had. I wanted to get out on the Hebridean Islands. A guy from Oban took me out on his yacht and just sort of dropped me off on one of the islands farther out. It was I was hitchhiking by yacht, which was really cool. But I took what I learned from that experience of being in a foreign place and traveling on my own I took that with me when I returned to the States. And even though I spend most of my time in the the Northeast in a pretty small geographical region, I still feel like a tourist in this place. And when I do travel, I go on short distance trips, but I'll try to travel European style. So for example, I'll take the bus to the train station in Albany. I'll take the train north to Port Kent, which is a, it's just like a platform on the side of Lake Champlain. You walk about 100 yards, you hop on the ferry, you go across the widest stretch of Lake Champlain, and the ferry drops you off in downtown Burlington, and you can rent a bicycle right there, and you can ride your bike to the B&B or the motel or whatever. And there's even people speaking French, (laughs) because you're right next to Quebec. So that's pretty much what it's like traveling in Europe. You can do it in upstate New York or Alabama or wherever else you are. It's all the way you approach travel. A post-peak oil travel agent, actually, (laughs) it sounds like. And I was wondering about all of the decayed infrastructure and factories there in the Northeast. A lot of people would find that depressing or something that they wouldn't want to be around. What's your take on that? Well, it speaks to me. It, It can be depressing, but it can also be inspiring. I mean, I am shocked to look at some of the grand rotting edifices and abandoned enterprise in upstate New York and think that I'm descended from the same people who created that stuff because the buildings and the transportation initiatives that we're putting up these days are certainly not anywhere near as inspiring or thoughtful. So, I mean, there's a certain mood in upstate New York. A lot of young people flee this region after college, you know, to go to New York or the Sun Belt or somewhere, you know, that's seeing better days. But it it speaks to me. And I do believe that it can come back and it will come back, you know, if people care about this and put more thought into it. And I, I see that happening. There's new people moving to Troy, New York every day of all ages because they're really excited to be in this authentic urban fabric that you can't find out in suburbia. Do you suppose that it's something that goes back in your history? Like, Where where do you find that same kind of experience that you're looking for? Do you see it anywhere else? I mean, 
where does Troy come down? Is it more like a European city? Is it more like a Canadian city? Where, where do you see it at, in there? Yeah, I mean, it. I've talked to a lot of European visitors who are in the smack center of downtown Troy where all the really beautiful buildings are. And yeah, they've said, gosh, this kind of looks like a small European city. And it does. But, you know, that has to do with just the way people built cities all over Europe and North America at the time. It's the same vintage. We happen to have like a maybe more intact urban fabric, although a lot of the grand buildings are vacant. Uh, we have more of that maybe than, than other places around the country, only because Troy, we didn't have the money to knock the stuff down in the 60s and 70s. I mean, they knocked down quite a bit in Troy, but they left a lot standing. And I, I honestly think it mostly had to do with the fact we, they didn't have the money to destroy the rest of it. So there's that. <laughs> Another thing that I feel being in a place like Troy, New York today, is that it kind of resembles what places like Troy, New York were like in the 19th century, when people were arriving to these small American cities from Europe and elsewhere, and the cities weren't finished yet. When I look at photographs of Troy from the 1890s, there were a lot of vacant lots, or, and I should say there were a lot of undeveloped lots, which Jim and I refer to today as missing teeth. You know, there weren't buildings finishing the urban smile of the streetscape. Now, that's because I hadn't built the place up yet. Today, it looks like that because we knocked a lot of stuff down. But still, when you arrive here, you, you feel like the, the place isn't done yet. There's a lot of work to do. So it kind of fosters this uh, pioneer spirit that a lot of people are, are interested in because people want to feel like they can contribute. When you arrive in a city that's already complete, you can enjoy it the way it is, but you don't necessarily feel like you can contribute to its progress. So it's, it's like an interactive city yeah. versus one that you just experience. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said. Some people don't want to roll their sleeves up and some people want to enjoy a place, you know, as it is. Other people want to enjoy a place as it could be. And they're willing to imagine that their children will be living in a better environment than they live in. So, you know, different strokes for different folks. Right, like you could go to a city like Chicago or New York and that place is so established, getting in there and rolling up your sleeves and trying to build that city is virtually impossible unless you're already part of the group that's doing that. Or going to an older place like Paris or London, you can't really build that city in the same way that you can Troy, is what you're saying. Yeah, although it, you know, it should be said that a city is made up of smaller neighborhood units. And of course, there are various neighborhoods in places like Chicago that are, you know, that still have work to be done to improve. So it's not like you can't get involved in steering the destiny of your city if you're living in a big city. It's just that when you arrive in a small city, you can be a big fish in a small pond, I guess. And some people like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and building off that, I wanted to talk about your views on civic engagement and kind of what civic engagement can be like for this up and coming generation. It's so many of our challenges really do require active populations that are involved in uh, local politics and what's going on in a city environment. Could you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to contribute. I think that some people feel like if you want to improve your community, you have to, you have to volunteer for all this stuff. You have to work for nonprofits, et cetera. But really, just the act of moving and becoming a resident of a small American city is good enough. 
It doesn't mean you have to stop there, but that's a major contribution to improving the place, is just being a person who's capable of supporting oneself and contributing to what's going on and spending money at the local businesses. I think there's a lot of young people today who are starting to realize that they're not necessarily going to get a job out there. You know, it's something that Peter the Carpenter talked about on my recent episode of the podcast. There's a difference between a job and a livelihood. And the way you contribute to your community is different when you have a job versus a livelihood. And I think a lot of people moving to places like Troy, New York, you know, you're not going to find jobs, but there's tons of opportunities to create your own business or to create your own way of earning a livelihood. And that's an important part of the civic contribution story, not just volunteering to clean up the junk in the alleys and not just running for office. And in many ways, that's exactly what you've done, I'd say, in moving to Troy and becoming basically an independent journalist. You're working on this project where you're encapsulizing the town of Troy with its people. I'm not sure where you're planning to go with it next, but I I know you're also working with a, a multimedia project and book where you're taking photos and doing audio interviews alongside of that. How does the town feel about you using them as a amuse in so many ways for your work, encapsulating so many parts of their their livelihood and their day-to-day activity. How do they feel about that? Well, I launched the program series a couple of weeks ago with, with three initial episodes, and then you know I'll be adding more to the mix as we go. But already there's been some media coverage locally and a little farther afield in the blogs and stuff. I know a lot of people in this town already, so they're supportive and they know that I'll do a good job presenting them <laughs> to the world. But it is interesting. I mean, I, I've worked on other projects that got more attention outside of my neighborhood. It's been interesting to go out in the past couple of weeks and my neighbors are coming up to me because they've seen various coverage of the project. You know, it's always like more nerve wracking to be in the local news than it is to be in the national news <laughs> because these are people you actually interact with every day. But I think people are excited um, to share their story. I have had to uh, calm a, f- <laughs> a few people who are who are worried that Troy is going to be, um, you know, like overrun with new homesteaders who are rushing to move to Troy. <laughs> I just don't see that happening. I I keep telling people like, look, you know, maybe a few people will hear the show and they'll be inspired to check it out. Maybe they'll like the place. But the the main purpose of the program is not to get people to move to Troy, although we could use more residents. It's to get people living in other small cities around the world to, you know, to pay attention to how they interact with their neighbors and how they conduct their lives in those places. That's that's the main goal. And I think the townies get it. We do have a pretty good fishing hole, though, so you don't want to blab it to everyone. (laughs) Yeah, don't tell everybody where that fishing hole is. (laughs) I wanted to get your thoughts on how North America's response to the long emergency and peak oil and all of the financial issues may differ from that in other places around the world and maybe some unique advantages that you've seen living in a small American city, how people can start framing it in their local context, all of these issues. Yeah, well, you know, Jim Kunzer has informed a lot of my, the way I think about the long emergency issues, and you've already heard from him on that. But he has told me, and I I felt it before I even talked with him, that places like Troy, well, they exist where they do for a reason. 
I mean, this place exists where it does because it's on the banks of a major inland water route. We're at the place on the Hudson River where the tide meets the south flowing current. A lot of people don't realize, like, we're 150 miles north of New York City, but it's actually tidal all the way up to Troy. And then there's a dam across the river in Troy, and that's the first lock on the New York State Canal system. People know of the Erie Canal, but it actually includes the Champlain Canal, which goes to the north, the Erie Canal, which goes all the way to Lake Erie to the west. Off of that, there's the Oswego Canal, which takes you north to Lake Ontario. And then there's two sort of southbound canals that take you to the Finger Lakes, Ithaca and and other places. And as a country, we've sort of turned our back on these traditional connections between the cities. But I see that there's this amazing potential to bring things like that back. We also have pretty decent rail, at least in the Hudson Valley. I'm, I'm talking passenger rail. When you're heading west, it's, it's a little less convenient to travel by rail. But there's still good rail in the Hudson Valley from New York City all the way to Montreal. The trains are fairly reliable. We have a lot of agricultural land right outside of these small cities. And, you know, for listeners around the country, the Northeast is a little bit different the way cities are because they're older. And when we started building cities in the colonial days, you know, you had to put a defensive wall around the things. I mean, like Schenectady, New York was surrounded by a wooden stockade because there was a French and Indian War raging at the time. So you tend to get these smaller population clusters. So someone living further out west might be kind of perplexed that we call (laughs) these urban organisms cities because they're so small. But there are a lot of them, and there's the potential to have productive agricultural uh, operations right outside of the cities, and there's means to, to travel around about them without using cars. So I think that'll be good in the long emergency. And in thinking about this long emergency, we have to think about boat travel. And I know you've spent a lot of time on a boat, like you were just saying before, and in writing your book. I'm wondering if you could give us some kind of insight about maybe what you've learned sitting on the boats for hours and hours and about the lifestyle that these people who run the boats live. Sure. And I'll say that the company that I'm observing most closely is based here in Troy. It's called the New York State Marine Highway Transportation Company. Around here, we just call them the Marine Highway. They have a fleet of four commercial tugboats. Two of them are called super canalers, and they're 90 feet long. And they have a galley and a shower and 11 bunks and... (laughs) They're tugboats. They're about 60, 70 years old, I believe, and they were custom-built to handle this particular part of the world. They can travel on the ocean, not across the ocean, but they can go up the coast of the ocean. They can travel on the Hudson River. They're small enough to get through the uh, canal locks. You know, the the locks on the Erie Canal and the other canals are, are pretty small. You can fit one barge with the tugboat through these locks, and you can haul about 3,000 tons. There's other configurations. You could push two barges, I guess, but you'd have to push one barge through first, then the other, then time. It would take a long time. So that's the type of boat I've been living on. And I think you guys had asked me in an email how I hooked up with these guys. You know, it's just the way Troy works. I met the sailors just out at the pubs. I've known them for years, just from happy hour. And, you know, we've swapped stories and stuff. It's the kind of town where politicians and lawyers and sailors and garbage men and mailmen all hang out together after hours. So that's how that came about. 
I've encountered a lot of really great salty tales, <laughs> brackish tales of life out on the water. But the main thing I've learned from living on the tugboats with the guys and observing how it works is just seeing how the world is connected in a more meaningful way. When we go from Troy down to New York City to bring cargo from, let's say, General Electric in Schenectady to a ship that's in Brooklyn, when we do that, we run 24 hours a day. They have two crews that work in six-hour shifts. And that's fun. But when you're on the canal, the state closes the locks at a certain time at night, and you actually just pull up into these small cities and towns all along the the Erie Canal, and you step off the boat and you go out to the pub, you go to a restaurant, you hang out, you meet the locals, then you hop back on the boat and you, you keep moving to the next place. And it's, it's really amazing to experience the world that way. You know, people don't get a chance to do that anymore that often. So I feel really lucky to be able to do that. And the last thing that I love is when the sailors, when we're done with a run and they bring me back to Troy... They literally just pull the nose of the tugboat or they push the nose of the barge up to the wall. And I just hop off, throw my duffel bag over the fence, and I walk 100 feet to my house. <laughs> it's a really great way to, to leave and arrive. Wow, that's that's amazing location where you're living. And that story is really fascinating because a lot of people look at the challenges of peak oil and unaffordable gasoline or jet fuel and look at the problems with air travel. And it can be kind of depressing to think, oh, I'm never going to be able to travel like people were 10 or 20 years ago. But people have been traveling for all of human history with boats and ever since we invented sailing and boat travel, there's always been uh, travelers going around the world. And a lot of those boat journeys were quite long. How long do you find yourself out on the waterways? Are we talking a day or are we talking like weeks? No, the longest that I've been out so far in the first season was a week, although it was punctuated by two nights back in Troy. We went out to Oswego by train, which is on Lake Ontario, to pick up the tugboat. And just the captain and the engineer and I ran it light with no cargo back to Troy. And then we had to load it in Port of Albany and bring it down to Brooklyn and back. But the schedule is always subject to change in shipping. So we had this like two-night layover back in Troy, which is kind of weird because everyone knew I was on this long 400-mile journey, but then I'm back in town for two days. It's like, no, I'm still on the journey. This is the layover <laughs> in Troy, which happens to be my own town. So the longest I've been out with the guys is a week. But let's see, the last run I did was at the end of November, and the guys had been on the boat for over three weeks. They took it from Troy down through New York City, up the coast to Portland, Maine. Then they were stuck in Portland, Maine for a week, I think. Then they brought this huge industrial air dryer back down the coast, up the Hudson. I hopped on in Troy and went with them to Oswego, but they kept going to Toronto, which takes a few days to get across the lake, and then all the way back to Troy. So they go on some long hauls. And I'm not allowed to go into Canada right now on a commercial shipping vessel, but I'm applying to get my merchant marine documents and become sort of a legitimate sailor, <laughs> although I'll still just be a cabin boy writer. Well, speaking from Canada's side, we'd love to have you up here whenever you can make it. I'm trying to do that next year. <laughs> so you've kind of piqued our interest a little bit about being on a boat. It sounds like a really exciting lifestyle and you kind of get to see all kinds of new places. 
And you were saying that you've heard some brackish stories. I wonder if you might share one of those. We don't want to embarrass anybody or give your book away, but maybe like a little preview or snapshot into that. Gosh, you know, I don't know if I should do that right now, but I can tell you, I mean, one of the captains, I really like him. Now, now I'll, I'll clarify this too. So there's a bunch of sailors based here in Troy, you know, because that's where the company is based. But the, you know, the first mates and the deckhands and the captains do come from all over the state. It depends on where the job is going to occur, and it depends on where the boat is based at the time. So the inland sailors do. They might have to hop a train and travel a few hundred miles to catch the boat. So that's kind of interesting. There's one captain in particular. I, I really like him, but, you know, he's gruff. And uh, I won't share some of his brackish tales right now, but I'll just say that He's a salty dog, and I was interviewing him, and at the end of talking with him for the day, I said, oh yeah, by the way, how old are you? And I'm thinking, he's just got to be like fi- at least 50 or something, you know, he's, he's pretty rugged. And he says, I'm 33. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, I'm 34, man. <laughs> this, is, this must be a hard life. There's no way I would have imagined you're younger than me. But I, I'll tell you, well, I mean, I grew a beard, you know, to sort of blend in better with the guys, but... My hands are <clears throat> pretty soft. I will say, though, I, we had a fun experience with my photographer, Neil, who's a great guy, but he's a nerdy ginger like me. So we're on the boat. He's from Troy, but he lives down in the New York City area. And we wanted to just have him do a one-way trip from Albany to Brooklyn and then drop him off down there so he didn't have to come all the way back. And after we finish, as they're offloading the cargo... The barge is tied up next to a big ship in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and the tugboat has to detach for that process, you know, so it's all safe. So the tugboat's detached, and this, you know, salty captain, he's like, I'll get your guy on shore. So we back up from the ship, and we go around the corner, and we, we start heading up the Guanus Canal. And, uh, and it's just getting crazier and narrower. And it's funny because the captain lives in the Finger Lakes now, but he grew up working in New York Harbor. A lot of these guys have worked New York Harbor. And anyway, you know, there's all this radio chatter. Everybody knows him on the radio. And we're just plugging along, going up the Guanus Canal. And then we get to this kind of shady, crumbling concrete wall with a chain link fence. And there's all this spray paint on the factories. And we just get to a point where he noses the tugboat up to the wall, and a couple deckhands help my photographer hop the wall. He's got this big, huge, overstuffed backpack on. He's wearing like a bright yellow polo shirt. And, uh, you know, they hand him this large, like Rubbermaid garage storage thing full of $40,000 worth of camera lenses. And he's on the wall, and then the captain just backs up the boat, and he sort of calls out the wheelhouse. Yeah, there's a hole in the fence about 200 feet up that way. And then we keep backing up and then he goes really bad neighborhood <laughs> that's just how we left my guy <laughs> he had to just find his way through through brooklyn you know i was able to text message him because i had the ipad so i'm sort of furiously texting him like find a mcdonald's or something you know like before you get a ride home but i guess he found a fire station and stayed there but he's an adventurous lad so he had fun it's, it was all in good fun yeah, it, it's a fun neighborhood there in Gowanus. I was just there last week, so I I thought it was funny to bring it up. But as a nerdy ginger myself, I would love to see you and Jim do a tour, taking the long emergency, the Kunstler cast on the road. Have you ever thought about doing stand-up, storytelling, or comedy? Well, we thought about that. Jim has taken the show over himself. I'm kind of guiding him behind the scenes, and he'll he'll be resurrecting that program, although it'll be in a different format soon. 
Jim and I did do some live audience episodes during the Congress for the New Urbanism, and we did one in front of like a college class once. Maybe there's a couple other times we did that. I am planning with my new program, A Small American City, to do live audience shows probably here in Troy, though. I don't think I'll be taking them on the road. I'm kind of hoping to attract people within, you know, a couple of hours to travel here to one of our performance spaces. You know, podcasts are really popular these days, and you can actually make a living doing things like live audience shows where you charge five bucks or something people can see up on stage. I do tend to edit my stuff a lot afterwards. I'm not always as concise and smooth when it's live. So there'll be a learning curve there. So as a last question to close out our conversation here today, the media landscape has changed so much in the last even five years in dealing with issues like you've covered so frequently with Jim on the Kunstler cast and how you're dealing with in a little bit more of like an indirect way or in working it into stories on your new show. And I'm wondering about your thoughts on how media is changing in the landscape of this long emergency that we're facing and opportunities for media in dealing with these issues. Yeah, well, even the mainstream media are picking up on the, they have a new buzzword, they call it hyper-local. But there's definitely a lot of room for new media enterprises to communicate hyper-local news. That is, you know, to really let folks know what's going on in a particular neighborhood. It's very difficult to make money in the media these days. There's so much free content out there. But, you know, there's something to be said about producing quality content and kind of sifting through all the noise out there. I sometimes joke, I mean, I worked as a print newspaper writer and a print magazine writer for a while. And I sometimes joke that if someone invented the newspaper today, it'd be a hit. It's like, what do you mean? Like, I can just read this piece of paper. I don't have to be on an iPad or something. And you sift through all the blogs out there and you give me the relevant news, (laughs) like in one place. God, what a great invention. So I kind of think that, yeah, I kind of think the newspaper, someone should, should reinvent it. Every town needs a town crier. You know, even, you know, during the apocalypse, you're still trying to run a business and conduct your life and you need to get the word out to customers or to let them know about some service you have or some news item. So obviously the news isn't going to go away, but it's going to take some creative, local-minded entrepreneurs out there to figure out a way to make it viable as a business. Because we, we do need to have professional journalists out there. Everyone can't just be a blogger and a podcaster. There's a formula for objectivity, but it's a formula that serves a valuable role in society, and people need to learn that. And they don't necessarily learn it when they're just blogging all the time. So if the internet ever stops functioning the way it does now, you'll be up there on the top of a steeple in Troy with a bell yelling out the latest stories? (laughs) Well, yeah, although one of my upcoming shows is going to be about this tiny neighborhood newsletter and the, uh, the woman who produces it. And my God, this is hyper-local news, but you want to get the word out to someone in this town, you tell her, you get it in her newsletter, because everybody reads the thing. A lot of it borders on gossip, but, you know, that keeps the eyeballs, or that brings the eyeballs back to it. So <laughs> There's nothing like gossip to get people interested. Yeah. So <laughs> we're at the end of our time here. Did you have any last thoughts, any projects you wanted to plug, anything we forgot to ask you and that you think is very, very important? Well, I have just established a league of extraordinary redheads. Our global headquarters is in Troy, New York, and we're hosting our first biannual meeting here in Troy. 
but I do expect this movement will travel the world. So any gingers or Auburn types or strawberry blondes, <laughs> you can find out more about that by going on Facebook and looking for League of Extraordinary Redheads. I am a redhead, by the way. But more seriously, for those who are interested in my project about the sailors, I do have a website up now. It's canalers.com. I really haven't posted that much content yet. But the best way to sort of follow that is to check out a smallamericancity.com. The sailors will probably be making their debut on that podcast. And by the time I put that show out, I'll have more content for folks on the Canalers website. I mean, we've got time-lapse videos going from Troy all the way down river to Brooklyn, et cetera. Lots of good stuff. It's just taken me a little while to roll that out. Thank you for coming on the show today. And Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And that wraps up our conversation with Duncan Crary and also our conversation with Jim Kunstler. And uh, Seth, I wanted to touch on a few things that Jim mentioned before we got into some listener feedback. And so Jim was talking about how one of the things that's happened since he wrote The Long Emergency is that our disabled banking system and the failure of our financial system has turned into perhaps an even bigger problem than peak oil and climate change, even though they're all interrelated. And I think it's really fascinating how when people think about how to solve problems, for example, uh, that are related to, say, climate or energy depletion, they're usually pretty expensive. They're usually costly measures like pumping tons of carbon under the Earth's surface or building expensive and even more costlier rigs to extract oil from deeper under the ocean. And I don't think a lot of people get the capital formation problems that we're experiencing now and even more so in the near-term future. That's right, Justin. And it seems that these economic conditions are just moving as kind of like a a storm ahead of the storm. So there's like a pre-storm and then behind it, you got an even bigger storm that's just coming along. And that, that is the, uh, the whole environmental crisis that, that this is bringing along with it. I think James brings up some, brings up some very interesting points about how the cities of today are just so not prepared for a place and time when oil is not abundant and and proliferating throughout our economy. I mean, you walk through any American city, pretty much any American city right now, and you see tons of drive-throughs. You see a huge amount of urban sprawl, people all over the place. And, you know, even in cities, it's, it's just very, very dependent upon oil. And that's pretty much all over the world, I would say, too. Um, I know you, you're living in, in Vancouver right now, Justin. Do you see that same kind of dependence on oil there as well? Yeah, it's it's less obviously than living in a suburban sprawled uh, environment uh, for me personally, but we're still heavily dependent on oil and an oil infrastructure. And uh, so even in my own life, I've been able to detach from oil in daily use. I still haven't been able to detach from it in all of the embodied energy and infrastructure and the fact that big trucks bring food into my town that's grown from really far away with petrochemicals many times. So you can't really detach from it. But a lot of people classify Jim's message as making him a doomer uh, because he doesn't say that technology is going to save us. What is it like when you bring up to people, Seth, that technology is not going to save us and magically fix our problems of peak oil or climate change? 
Well, that's a very uh, highly held belief. I think in in mo- many people all over the world. I listen to um, NPR sometimes when I'm driving around. I don't listen to it very much these days because it just makes me feel really upset and angry and have bad stomach feelings inside of myself. But when I do clicked it on, I, I heard Paul Krugman on the radio telling us that a trillion dollars of debt is really not that bad. You know. We're not mortgaging our ch- ch- our children's futures or anything like that. We don't really need to worry about any any kind of debt that's that's coming down on us. And that same way, when you start talking about how technology really is not going to be this, the end all and, and save all of our society, it's not going to do anything when you when you think about it to uh, really get rid of, get us out of this huge economic crisis that we're in, or even the environmental one. The fact that we base most of our technology on a scarce resource that is non-renewable and how we're pretty much pushing the limits of that technology to to try to get that last bit of oil out of our earth, it doesn't really occur to people that technology is really not going to be there because, you know, they have smartphones in their hands and they can talk to people on the other side of the world for free. And, you know, why, why can't that same thing happen with oil? It just doesn't make sense in their heads. So bringing up things like it's not, they're not going to be saved by technology just really doesn't register with people. And they say like, what, what are you talking about? Of course, of course I'll, I'll be saved by technology. I mean, technology has made my life so much greater. Look at mobile phones. So I, it's just so much the case that I see so many people who are unbelievably unprepared psychologically for that realization that we're not going to be able to fix everything with technology. But who knows, it may be sometime before we get to that point and, uh, you know, before we have to face up to that fact. You know, it may be a while before we face uh, some kind of large-scale electricity failure. Now, to illustrate why that may be the case, I'm going to play this short clip. And of late, exponentially growing technologies. My good friend Ray Kurzweil showed that any tool that becomes an information technology jumps on Moore's law. That's why the cell phone in your pocket is literally a million times cheaper and a thousand times faster than the supercomputer of the 70s. Justin? Justin, are you there? Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh, folks. It looks like we had a power outage. I'll try to get Justin back. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. We're just going to have to turn the lights back on. Well, anyways, you get the point. So I thought Jim brought up an interesting idea of suddenly everybody stopping paying back their college loans. Could you imagine if there was a movement like Strike Debt or like Occupy that just millions and millions of people got on all of a sudden and just said, we're not like on this day, we're going to stop paying back our college loans. That probably would bring down the global financial system. It would do. It definitely would make some impact on the system for sure. If everyone stopped paying back their debts, how do you, what do you, what do the banks do when nobody pays back the, their debts on, on a certain, you know, what if for a week if nobody paid back debts? Yeah, it just, it would collapse all of the derivatives and the collateralized debt obligations that were built on top of all of these packaged debts that are being pushed around the world and sold uh, to pension funds and, and other funds. And, um, you know, it would have a really big impact. So I wouldn't be surprised in, you know, a year or three years or five years or maybe even a whole generation that uh, people just say, you know what, we're done with this. We're not paying back our college loans anymore because we took on all this debt and we're not getting jobs and we're done. And it could totally happen. I think, though, Justin, what you need to realize is that kind of mindset is something that's totally different than what people think about now. People don't would not even think of not paying back their debts because they're so that idea is so ingrained in them that 
that debt is so much a part of life and that paying back your debt is so much a part of what it means to be part of the society, you know, and the idea to have that kind of shift in thinking, that kind of shift in consciousness and, and on a widespread scale as, of what we need to make those that that kind of scenario that you're talking about happen. It would take a, a large, a large shift in, in thinking. And I don't know. Are, do you think we're, we're there? Do you think we're there yet as a society? Do you think that we're moving that direction? I think it's a combination of learning to take personal responsibility for the challenges we have in our world, but also understanding the systemic challenges that face us and realizing that sometimes no matter how responsible or how good of a citizen you may try to be, the system is geared against you and it's turned against human nature and the environment. And so those debts aren't necessarily a moral debt to take on. And that's a really hard concept for a lot of people, especially in the U.S., but also who come from a Protestant background to understand. And so it's going to take a really big shift before we get there. But I think we're on the verge of it. And I think people are really starting to question the nature of debt and of money and uh, are starting to think about different models for living and for getting jobs and finding an employment and meaningful employment, though those just haven't entered the mainstream. They're very much on the fringe, but there's a lot of people doing it. And slowly it's going to filter into the mainstream and it's only going to accelerate as the global economic crisis continues, whether it's a slow stagnation and grind downwards or a really few rapid quick drops. But Jim and Duncan both mentioned rail travel in our conversations, and uh, that's why I'm taking a train trip down to Portland in February during the week of February the 17th and also to San Francisco later that week. So if you are an extra environmentalist listener in Portland or San Francisco, shoot us an email, let me know, and it would be great to have a beer night in one of those places. And Seth, you're going to San Francisco as well, aren't you? That's right, Justin. I will be in San Francisco on March 8th through the 12th. I will be there on some business trips, but I will be really excited to see any extra environmentalists who wanted to hang out for some dinner, for some drinks afterwards. Um, so yeah, let me know. Let let Justin and I know uh, when if you want to hang out. He's going to be in Portland. I'm going to be in San Francisco. He's going to be in San Francisco as well. Not the same times, but different times, and it'll be... A fantastic evening out. Yeah. So thanks to Jim and thanks to Duncan for coming on to the show and for and to Duncan for talking about so many cool projects that he's involved in. And so uh, one of the cool projects that I wanted to highlight and that has definitely been slowing down our production schedule recently is a conference I'm planning here at the University of British Columbia for April the 5th and 6th of this year. It's called the New Economy Summit. We're talking about all of these ideas that we cover on the Extra Environmentalist and how we could actually start putting them into practice in our economy and in our community. And we're gonna have people who have been on the Extra Environmentalist before, like Donnie McClurkin from the Post Growth Institute. And we're gonna have uh, Morris Berman and Bill Rees, who you've heard before. Morris Berman's going to be talking about the Japanese economy and how it, the craft culture there shows examples for how a post-capitalist economy could look. And Bill Rees is going to be talking about economics education, what we need to learn differently in our economic system. Justin, how can people find out more about this amazing conference that you're organizing, you're organizing up at UBC? Yeah, so you can find out at neweconomy at ubc.ca. So that's a .ca URL because we are in Canada. And you'll be hearing more about that once we figure out the schedule we are putting together. 
the conference format right now, but all we know so far is we're gonna have a lot of great conversations and produce a lot of great media from it while we're here. Hey, it's quite a periodic. Had uh, quite a number of things that have come up to say. Well, first of all, a comment on degrowth, I guess. Y'all need to avoid the shit is fucked and shit is fucked narrative like the plague, because I know I do. Because I've known shit is fucked before I knew why shit was fucked, and I don't really need any other reasons. I don't think anybody needs another reason to believe shit is fucked or even suspect it or wonder in the middle of the night. There was this one I heard recently about the methane hydrates in the uh, seafloor when they uh, do this catastrophic melting that it's been hypothesized that they do when it gets warm enough that they release enough hydrochloric acid to melt all the biomass on the planet, and that's where oil originally came from. I don't know. Somebody in a podcast said they read it in the news scientist. Freaked me out for like a week. I don't need to hear this crap. A new ideas, right? There were, you, there were a few of those things from the degrowth. Y'all did mostly focus on people who were not just critiquing the old tired system and telling you that you were totally dependent on it and it's going to fall apart. So in that vein, I've had this idea that I'm pretty excited about. So I'm a, a nerd farmer or something like that. I, I'm an Android geek. I uh, love my phone that plays my podcast that also does all these other peculiar things. And I got sucked in at a vulnerable moment into this ingress game, which is location aware, and you actually have to be present at a random historical monument or something to do the stuff, and I started um, seaballing just because it seemed like an interesting thing. I kept visiting these places, uh, started throwing out seeds, and I started to also wonder what my, my dream job would really be, and it was a total no-brainer. It was so obvious. I wanted to farm for Google. I, I want to farm on the Google campus, ideally. That's my dream job. Uh, I want to integrate Google Glasses into farming. So really, how would Google farm? You're Google. So farming is a data data distribution problem, of course. So I'm distributing these seeds everywhere I go in town, uh, playing this location-aware game. I start imagining these uh, perennial vegetable plots distributed all over town, and everyone effectively crowdsourcing their care and harvesting. I mean, what that effectively does, you get this app on your phone that tells you, okay, simple example, this cherry tree is fruiting right now. Go harvest the squirrels are going to be a little hungrier because that food's going to get eaten by humans. But also these vegetable patches. So you have all these distributed vegetable patches. People go out, they get, they check in somehow, they get points for weeding, they get points for fertilizing, they get points for watering, they get points for harvesting and propagating. Because let me tell you, there's some incredible vegetables that exist right now. Sunchoke was what sort of led me into it. I'd always been vaguely aware of it. I'd always heard people say, oh, you don't want to plant sunchoke, it'll take over your garden. The more I thought about it, I was like, What's wrong with that? It is not as aggressive as that. It's not like a kudzu or whatever. Not even that kudzu is actually a problem. But it does. You plant five ounces and you get back five pounds in a year, and it takes almost no care, like really very, very little. I planted a 300-foot row this year. Well, the whole story is I bought some at a, a grocery store that I saw on the shelf. I was like, oh, I've been curious about that plant for a long time. I went home and I planted it, and I got five pounds. And five pounds, you cut up these weird gingery-looking rhizomes, and I planted a 300-foot row out of that. And this year, I've got a 300-foot row to harvest, probably at least 500 pounds of it. I'm not even sure where to put it all, except that I'm trying to start planting it in public parks. 
you can basically you can basically download being a permaculturalist in an app. You can app it tells you, hey, there's this food here. It tells you to grow this plot with these peculiar vegetables you've never seen, and it tells you how to find them, what they are, how to cook them. I was a row cropper this year, so I got really a first-hand view of the energy return on investment of your average beet or squash. It's pretty high. I mean, not the return, the investment. And with these, like, sunchokes or Jerusalem artichokes or these others that I haven't grown all the way out yet, Turkish rocket, TKL, uh, walking onion, Egyptian walking onion, uh, beech plum, skirt, these are the ones I'm really interested in. They all grow by division, which means you don't have to be any kind of uh, horticulturalist to uh, propagate these plants. Well, in year two, I dug uh, up my sunchokes and made 150 plants out of it in year two. That's, that's a serious exponential curve. That is enormous growth. I mean, that's why I'm kind of not into the degrowth. Like, I'm into growth. I love, I have ordered the most amazing abundance off the Internet. These plants could live forever. They could feed the nth generation. This plant, this one that I just got in the mail, or such an amazing feeling to just, like, hold this plant. is like factor of five every year, 500% growth every year. That's abundance. That's growth. That's, I mean, I love growth. I love growth. And so this app, on your, you download it on your phone and suddenly you're a freaking permaculturalist. That's all you really need. You need to go to a place, see the plant, dig up a piece, take it home, watch it grow, share the abundance. So I'm calling it um, vegetation, as in vegetable geocaching, but also get a vegetation. Very clever of me. Very pleased with myself. Uh, that's one of the hashtags I'm using, that and lol farming. Uh, on Google Plus and on Twitter and got a group on Google Plus. A couple people so far talking about it and I'll post whenever I have a new idea. I don't want to develop an app. I just want it to exist and I want to get a job at Google. I want to be subsidized and making as many of these goddamn plants as I fucking can and giving them to everyone. Oh, Lordy. They're amazing. Okay, hope y'all are doing well. Thanks, Quasi Periodic, for giving us a call. And I will say I am pro-growth as well whenever it comes to plants and local agriculture. And I think it's what Eric Asadorian said in our last episode that for the developed world, we have to shrink our industries. But one area of our economy that's going to grow dramatically is local agriculture. And so finding new ways to do that is going to be so important. But thanks for giving us a call. Thanks for giving us a call, Quasi Periodic. Really always appreciate your words from the field and from your tractor, which I hope is doing well. Hey, guys, this is Joel from Alabama. I uh, I just wanted to let, call in and tell you, man, your show really has changed so much about my life and the way that I read and the things that I learn. And uh, I just feel so much better informed. I uh, have always sort of disagreed with the way that our society is headed and the values that we have, and I believe in simplicity and a state of sustainability and having just enough. But I never really connected the dots like you guys are able to do on your show. And it really, I mean, it's changed my life, and I, and I don't say that enough about anything. And the fact that you can produce a podcast that my, that my mother, who you know, two years ago figured out that the uh, mouse is moved, like the pointer on the screen is moved by the mouse on the computer, and that she listens to and understands and enjoys, connects and explains to, to people that I, I, I couldn't explain um, a lot of the stuff that you guys are able to um, to really uh, 
it, uh, you don't dumb down any of the information, and uh, it's presented so well, and I really, really have enjoyed your show so much. So thank you guys, and keep putting it out there. So uh, take care and great job. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so thanks to Joel for giving us a call, and we're so glad that our show's been able to reach out and really change some of the ways uh, that you're thinking. And Joel, you also shot us an awesome donation, so thanks so much for that, and we're going to be sending some stickers your way. And it's so cool that since you're a youth minister in Alabama, you are using some of the clips from our show in uh, in your work as a youth minister. I'm always a little bit uh, scared when people start using our, our work and giving it to children. You know, we should probably we have that we have that uh, sticker on our iTunes account for a reason. These are very mature ideas and giving them to kids could really mess with their brains. You know, um, not really. Might, I think kids they might get start it. thinking that growth is a bad thing. And then what What were they going to do with their lives, Justin? What will they do with their lives? I think maybe it's just dangerous for those kids' parents, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but thank you so very much, Joel, for that those kind words and for those kind donations as well. I actually have yeah. ordered all the T-shirts. They are sitting in my office. I have to wrap them up and send them out. They are on their way, though. So they are in hand, ready to go. Be ready and excited to get your amazing extra environmentalist t-shirt one of the cool things that joel is doing and using our content uh in his youth ministry is um integrating this whole idea of stewardship and building an alternative to the consumer economy into the christian ethic and there's so many aspects of christianity that that integrate with this whole idea of stewardship and one of the things that we've been talking about um in some of my classes here at ubc is how one of the fastest growing aspects of christianity are evangelicals that acknowledge climate change and acknowledge the problems, uh, the environmental problems in the world and are starting to build in that idea of stewardship uh, to uh, to their religion. And that's really cool. Yeah. And you know, Justin, you probably could use these episodes to supplement your homeschool education program as well. I think exactly. uh, I think a little bit of extra environmentalism in, into the homeschool, the homeschooler routine would probably be a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. We are more than welcome to let you use any content you want for whatever purpose, but we encourage you to use it for educational material. And we're going to have a lot more cool educational material if some of our plans for 2013 work out, which we'll be talking about in future episodes. We've been getting some great comments on the website recently, and we heard from Darren, who wanted to know a bit more about my nanotechnology degree and know that is not a joke. I actually do have a degree in nanotechnology. I'll give you a little bit of background. Years ago, when I started my degree in nanotechnology, I thought that perhaps future technology development may actually be of some very important use and that nanotechnology actually had quite a bit of potential. And about a year and a half into my program doing lab research and learning about the field, I came to a pretty much uh, completely opposite conclusion. (laughs) <laughs> and so I had a choice of either <laughs> I had a choice of either abandoning my research I had already done or finding a way to fight to the finish and that's when I started making a lot of big life changes and got a job as a sustainability coordinator here at UBC and um 
uh, lots of other things, started a podcast, which you're listening to now. And uh, so I've been moving in a different direction for quite some time. But you can also know that any critiques we provide about technology come from a very strong undergrad in physics and electrical engineering and master's degree in materials engineering background. I only have an undergraduate degree in journalism. So don't feel intimidated by Justin. Uh, we got a comment talking about my love for technology and how I said that everybody kind of loves technology. And, you know, there's there's always a bit of sarcasm that goes on with this show and the fact that everybody kind of loves technology in that love-hate kind of way that you're like, oh, wow, this, this smartphone allows me to do amazing things, but I know that it's not really going to save my save the world in that kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of way is is kind of how I approach technology that that's really the way that I see technology even though I use it daily in uh, work as a videographer well uh, for as many shows as we produce about the problems of technology um, we sure do use a lot of technology on our show and as much as I tried to cut out cell phones and technology from my own life I ended up getting a smartphone this past year because the cell phone companies here in Canada are giving them away for free now. And, uh, you know, they are useful, but it's part of responsible technology use to just put the thing away and not play with it all the time. And I've been uh, a long, uh, a long time user of technology, of high technology with my engineering background. And so I definitely have learned to use it, but I have not yet learned to love it. So I spend way too much time on a computer and I'd much rather be out in the forest. And the same for you, Seth. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I spend way too much time in front of screens. And editing this podcast, we definitely spend a lot of time in front yeah, of screens. Yeah, my, my eyes hurt. They're probably going to fall out of their head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that wraps up a little bit of listener feedback, but we're going to dive into more on our SoundCloud page, which you can check out at soundcloud.com slash extra environmentalist. Now, two times a month, we're going to put up a little bit of extra content that we don't have room for in the show that really deserves to be heard in terms of dialogue with listeners. And we hope that'll get you guys uh everyone listening uh, more comfortable with writing in, with calling in. We get so many great emails every day now, and we just want to keep accelerating that process of building that community of people who know that they're working on issues of uh, this economic transition and who are aware of all the challenges in our world. And that's a little bit because our last episode went a bit over three hours and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it can be a little bit excessive. We like to keep it around two, but some episodes just need to be three. So this is going to in a uh, effort to try to keep that extra content that we like to tack on at the end of the episode to a minimum or just at least put it to a place where you can choose to listen to it if you prefer. Exactly. Yeah. So soundcloud.com slash extra environmentalist out of the thousands and thousands of people who download the show on a regular basis. We only have 80 SoundCloud followers. So, uh, you know, you don't have to follow us on SoundCloud, but you can listen and leave comments and also record your voice responses right there um, on the SoundCloud page. So we'll hope to see you there and we'll hope to get more voicemails. That's right, Justin. People can reach us through voicemail in a couple different ways. We have a landline set up. It's a landline voicemail box where people can call any time of the day or night from anywhere in the whole world with a plus one it's country code 919-701-XTRA. That's 919-701-9872. 
People can also reach us over Skype. There's a Skype link on our website as well. Please just feel free to click and leave your voice mailboxes. We love hearing your voices. It really makes this ep- this uh, makes this podcast a little bit more interesting when we can include some of the listener feedback that we get instead of just Justin and I blathering on for hours and hours and hours. Uh, people can also find the Extra Environmentalist on Facebook.com where we have just gone over a thousand listener a uh, thousand likes. We are at 1,031 likes, which is incredible, amazing, fantastic. Thank you so very much for telling all your friends and family about this fantastic podcast that you have chosen to like on so many different ways. You can also find us on Twitter where our handle is xenvironmental. Uh, we put out a few tweets a week, and it's a great place to visit and hang out. Or you can follow both Seth and I on Twitter on our individual accounts. I tweet quite a bit these days, so uh, hop on there and follow if you want to be engaged in a little bit more frequent conversation than we're able to share on our podcast. And so we want to give a huge um, thanks to Joel for not only calling in, but leaving us a donation. And as we've mentioned before, your donations in the United States are tax deductible because we are a nonprofit organization and you can find all the tax ID information on our website or if you leave a donation you get it um, in the email is that right Seth yes I do believe so and if you if you have any questions with that that tax ID it's available on our website just click over to the uh, donate tab and you can find all that information out yeah and so we're extremely grateful for your donations I think it's going to get Seth up here to Vancouver for this new economy summit that I'm organizing to do some live streaming and some video interviews so we're about to throw up a whole new series of video interviews here in the near future we have more content with Charles Eisenstein we've got a video interview with Dennis McKenna on the way with Sandra Katz about fermentation and also a video interview with Richard Wolf talking about economic transition. Is something like that even possible? You can find out here later on the Extra Environmentals when we put that video out. And a huge thanks to Kevin, our editor, who just keeps stepping up to the bat and doing an incredible job at editing all the conversations that you heard today. We were extremely grateful to have his help and have him be part of the Extra Environmentalist team. And you're going to be hearing from him a lot more very soon because we'll be playing some of his coverage from the Northwest Permaculture Conference and talking to him about the ideas of permaculture. That's right, Kevin is an extremely integral part of this show. You don't really hear his voice too often, but you will soon. So thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode number 56 of The Extra Environmentalist. We really appreciate everybody's hanging in there and, and continuing to like and listen to The Extra Environmentalist. We really appreciate everyone sharing their, this, the links with friends and post, putting on each other's Facebooks and posting on each other on their own Facebooks. It's just a great thing. You know, sharing media with people is one of the joys of life. And I'm glad that we here at The Extra Environmentalist could help you spread joy to your friends and family and Coworkers. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Next time your football game blacks out, just remember there's plenty of whale, I mean shale oil under the ground. You mean whale oil? Yeah, whale.
I was invited to TED about, I don't know, eight or ten years ago. I certainly met a lot of very interesting people. I'm not quite sure who the TED audience really was uh, or what they were about. It wasn't clear to me whether we were putting on kind of a technological minstrel show for very wealthy venture capitalists or what, but it certainly had some value. I do think the TED system is a little bit techno-narcissistic, if you don't mind my saying that, in the sense that it has an, an awfully high regard for the magic of technology, in my opinion, a little bit too high of a regard and not a high enough regard for the unintended consequences and diminishing returns. But I'm not sorry I went there. They never invited me back. I guess they're more interested in flying cars than what I have to say. That's too bad. In the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we hear from the Pacific Northwest Permaculture Conference from the year 2012. Within our gardening and with our permacultures and our ideas of the future is our greater self. So in our gardens are infinite possibilities. Donella Meadows is a systems thinker. She wrote that book, The Limits to Growth and Beyond the Limits to Growth. People were laughing at her because she was doing all these computer models that were showing how scarce our resources were going to become in an exponential way. And Donella Meadows taught me that when you're trying to affect change, there's different levels of intervention that you can intervene on that have more or less effect. And she said the highest level of intervention, if you're trying to change things quickly, you go to the highest level of intervention, which is paradigm shift. It's where your mind has to wrap itself around a completely different way of looking at things. And in, in many respects, permaculture involves a paradigm shift for most people because they don't think of the microbes in the soil being affecting the roots and the trees and the animals around the trees. They don't think that way. They think I put a carrot seed in the ground and I'll get a carrot. It's as far as their food growth consciousness goes. I realized that when I was coming here to talk at, at this edition of the Federal Reserve Talks, the Fed Talks, I wanted to talk about a really big idea that was going to transform our economy. And one of the things that we've been doing in transforming our economy over the last few years is the role that corporations have been playing in our lives. So as you can see here, corporations have been integrating themselves into our lives, into our political systems, and into our innovation. And as a part of the Fed Talks, 
I wanted to show you this new idea that we have for even furthering that integration and taking economic growth to the next level. I introduce to you today, OK Corporation. So we're bringing a new meaning to corporate partnership with our website because our corporations cannot grow fast enough to ensure economic growth. And so we want to amplify that level of ideas having sex, but corporations having sex as well. The response has been incredible, and we've actually had to open up a portion of the website now where it's not even corporations dating each other, but you can date corporations. So I introduced to you today Simon Gunshy. He's been dating Johnson and Johnson, and it's been a beautiful relationship to behold. He actually has a very important question for Johnson and Johnson. So thanks, thanks for having me here today. Me and Johnson and Johnson, we started talking way back when the site just came live, and I put out a profile and I saw it out there, and I was like, oh my goodness gracious, my heart skipped a beat. And it was love at first sight. So I came here to this Fed talk today to ask Johnson and Johnson a very, very important question. Johnson and Johnson, will you marry me? And here to represent Johnson and Johnson is this talking diaper that has also completed law school, who will be representing Johnson and Johnson in this matter. <laughs> Speaking on behalf of the legal entity that is Johnson and Johnson. And by the power bestowed on me by our corporate charter and our corporate board, I hereby accept your offer to marry us. We will complete our merger after a full review of each of our representative boards. But I can say that things look very positive and we can't wait to consummate our relationship and to make sure that you give your entire life force to us. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Dyke. Here we have today for this Fed Talk, our first ever union between a man and a corporation and i must say it's a beautiful thing to behold for our economy because it can get us back to the economic growth that we all need that we all know we deserve and that we now love in a physical way as well as emotionally emotional parts important too i, th I think we lost power